Hey everybody, welcome to Open Mic with me, Mike Creed. Um, this week on the podcast, we have Olympian, national champion, uh, time trial record holder, U.S. hour record holder. Um, he is, well, his name is Colby Pierce. Uh, you may or may not know Colby Pierce. He was definitely a time trial specialist, but uh, over the years, he's reinvented himself as a local cross racer. Um, he got onto the track, kicked ass in track, won World Cup, went to uh, the Olympics, national champion, uh, became a coach for the national team for a while. Now he's back uh, doing his own coaching business, his own bike fit business. I've gotten his bike fit. If you have any kind of uh, niggles or wiggles in your fit, you're just not sure, Colby's the man. It is, I've had some in intense bike fits, uh, Park among them. Uh, he's a great bike fitter, but Colby is uh, equally as great. Um, depending on who you ask, maybe he's better. I don't know. I love both those guys. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna put them up against each other. I will say that Colby does some pretty interesting things. Also, this week again, we're sponsored by Carlos We got our sponsorship renewed, so that means more money. Hopefully, not more problems. Um, what would be great is if you guys could, uh, you know, continue to support and mention Carlos all right, so they, they 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 hear you guys, they, they know everything, but if you're going to order something, if you need a bike part, anything, they want you to call 1-800-688-8600, and there's a coupon for 15% off, it is uh, Podcast Colby, you tell them Podcast Colby, tell them that you love open mic, tell them the only reason you even know they exist is because of this awesome podcast um that's 15 percent off any non-sale item all right so let's not get greedy fellas all right and ladies i know there's a lot of ladies that listen to this you know what i'm gonna take a little time to just talk to the ladies right now i want to have more women on the podcast i've tried okay i've tried but here's a non-surprising fact women don't generally trust me okay they always think i'm gonna be a little hijinks Almost got a podcast done with Robin Farina, but she bailed. So maybe tweet at Robin Farina for being such a bailer. Um, gonna get up and podcast with Georgia Gould. We just keep missing each other. It's gonna happen, ladies, all right? Um, what else? I guess nothing. Hey, enjoy the podcast. I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. That part of me is gone. Working and not succeeding. All my uh, failures has left me. Uh, I just don't care. What's well, in me is in you. Times when I I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Oh, I want to earn enough money I can 
get away from everyone. I see the worst in people, Henry. I don't need to look past seeing them to get all I need. I once knew a nigga whose real name was William. His primary concern was making a million, being the illest hustler that the world ever seen. He used to fuck movie stars and sniff coke in his dreams. A corrupted young mind at the age of 13. Nigga never had a father and his mom was a fiend. She put the pipe down, but for every year she was sober. Her son's heart simultaneously grew colder. He started hanging out, selling bags in the projects. Checking the young chicks, looking for hit and run prospects. He was fascinated by material objects, but he he understood money never bought respect he built a reputation because he could hustle and steal but got locked once and didn't hesitate to squeal so criminals he chilled with didn't think he was real you see me and niggas like this have never been equal i don't project my insecurities on other people he fiended for props like addicts with pipes and needles and so he felt he had to prove to everyone he was evil a feeble-minded young man with infinite potential the product of a ghetto-bred capitalistic mental coincidentally dropped out of school to sell weed dancing with the devil smoked until his eyes would bleed but he was sick of selling trees and gave in to his greed again cheers 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 i need to find this so that you have an idea before <coughs> just gotta hide that in case we have the some dude walks by and there's a security camera right there this is a good orange juice this is great juice <laughs> It is like slightly embarrassing, right? When you get like that slight charge when you like when, when you like you're like a Twitter mention, what happened? What's why is somebody talking about me? I have that conversation with my daughter all the time. Really? Where she's like Does she have I the text? I am loved. No, but she actually says that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I thought you were making Didn't we talk about that already? We did, we did, yeah. yeah. Her addiction to technology. The state of society mm -hmm. and the, you know, the age group in general. Yeah. yeah, I think it's just that instant gratification, right? Mm -hmm. It's the... I mean, I like to play the game of, like, when is the cyclist at the airport? <laughs> I think it's, like, for me, it's worse. I don't... I mean, I do, like, maybe one Twitter update a day. Right more or less average, but then if I'm at the airport waiting for a plane yeah. or stuck like, on the plane, it's like, I just bang out 10 of them. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, well, I guess I'm at the airport. Unpredictable. <laughs> um, so, give me, give me phone. I'll turn my phone off. These emails are getting crazy. You know the worst part about being the the worst part about being a team director is that you, like people ask questions and you feel really bad because you don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. You're just like, ah, I should know the answer. <laughs> I I would imagine it's my job, but just my current state of it's not through like any kind of ignorance. I just I just don't know what I I just don't know. <laughs> just don't know. On a long enough timeline, I assume I'll figure it out. But like <laughs> as of right now, I I just have a shoulder shrug. What's the email equivalent of a shoulder shrug? Or it doesn't seem like I'm blowing you off. <laughs> yeah. And it's, if they forward it, it like, yeah. can you believe what Mike sent me? It doesn't look bad. <laughs> I'm trying to like verbally create the, the, the email shoulder shrug. That's the problem with email is that it's a record everything you say. Yeah. Have you ever written one of those emails yet? Like one of those emails where you're like, write this because write this as if it might be forwarded. 
<laughs> like visualizing it being forward, you're like, yeah. let's be professional. Yeah, no, because sure. I, I, you still want to be aggressive and like let the person know your point. Right. But you, you have to write it as if. So like I've written it where it's like, okay, I'm being really mean. But if they forwarded this to somebody, they're gonna laugh at them too. <laughs> like, wow, that was kind of messed up for Creed to say that. But, but he was pretty. He had funny. some really good points, and <laughs> he was funny about him. You know, like we're still friends, but I think I'm gonna call Mike first. <laughs> it's a good way. But tell us, you just did the two hour records within a week. Yeah. And then today was the. What, Today with okay. What so are they called? The athletes, right? Athletes. So we have to clear the. I've had. I'm, I'm surprised at how many questions I've had about this. Because to me, of course, everyone should know this. Sure. Right. Doy. <laughs> no, for geeks like us, it comes. <laughs> it comes second nature. I have to constantly remind myself that. Yeah, exactly. Not everybody's out, bike geeks. Aren't out uh, digging up obscure pages on the UCI <laughs> website to see who the fuck holds what random record and what the rules are. People don't sit around and do that. Yeah. Um, I don't understand why, but. Do you remember when USA Cycling, when they would issue rule books and there are the records in the back? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. How much time totally. did you spend like looking? scouring over those and going, my name could be on that one someday? Uh, that's, that's, I mean, that's how this was all born ultimately, was on those record books, like sitting there with Waters, like when we were. 17 years old, you know, yeah. in his parents' living room, eating chips and salsa in our chamois, walking in from a two and a half hour ride where yeah. Jonathan had brought me up every hill and looking at USAC real books and going, okay, so-and-so has the 40K record and this guy has the 20K junior record and he set it at such and such nationals. Moriarty. Moriarty or Borrego Springs or wherever it was. And, yeah. And man, we got to get that. I, I want to I get that. That was born of those days. That was it. Dude, I've never met him. I've never even seen a photo of him. Yeah. But Heath Sandal, yes, his name is yep. forever born mm -hmm. into my brain because, like, it's burned in my brain because when I was maybe 13 years old, I saw a rule book and I saw that Heath Sandal, as a junior, yep. did like a 20k in 23 minutes and 45 seconds, and that was amazing to me because he had averaged over 30 miles an hour. Right, right. And he was my hero just on that. Huh. And the rest of my junior career was built towards beating Heath Sandals' record. <laughs> and like, yeah. Heath Sandals probably somewhere, like, has Having a normal job. Life. Yeah. And doesn't, like, didn't realize at this point that there was this kid who, like, thought he was like a little mini-god, you know? Like, there wasn't a Facebook. I couldn't stalk him on Facebook. <laughs> you know? Like, right, right. There was no, like, oh, I'll just Google image that, search. Back of that rule book page was Facebook back then, pretty yeah. much. As close and as you got. For nerds like us, we've totally. obsessed over that. Totally. And then you get your copy of Winning or whatever, or some obtuse cycling magazine, and scour the pages, and I'd see a picture of Kent Bostick on his hooker bike, which was basically yeah. like <laughs> literally an aluminum frame that had been squashed in a vice, you know, pretty yeah. much. Everything, every part. I saw one last year. They're, they're like, they were way ahead of their time. The time. I mean, there was yeah, nothing yeah. even close to it. Narrow bottom brackets. Everything. The even they they machined the brakes. They machined. I just read. I dug up some old article online recently, and I was, um, and it was talking about the hooker bikes and how those guys just they were they were like I think they were car dorks or something you know and they, so they had a machine shop and they just decided to make these fastest bikes. This guy Dave Spangler, who's one of those names that I've never met this guy, but you know but his name. I know his name from all these articles, and Kent, you know, Dave Spangler, blah blah blah, and like. And they just made they made everything. They made the bars. They made the brakes. 
They made the forks, they yeah. made the hubs to go with the narrow front forks, they made the rear hubs, they made disc wheels somehow, and then a couple other manufacturers made random disc wheels, they made cranks, whole, the seat posts, everything was just ridiculously arrow. And they probably weighed a million pounds, and the only person who raced one way beyond their days was Gene Longo had one. Yeah. And they were, I think they were about as flexible as you could possibly make, because they were pretty so much thin. had, they were just thin aluminum, and they were 100% arrow, that was it. And they were made for an out-and-back American TT. They were made for Moriarty. Yeah. You don't need a stiff bike for that race. You just need to be fast. Uh -huh. So to, the, to that end, it worked really well. But, and remember, the bars were basically just arrow extensions with yeah. no bullhorns at all. Yeah, yeah. And Kent looked like he was literally humping a dolphin when he would start. Slowest start in the world, but, I mean, once you got up to speed, you, know, you don't need the bullhorns. I don't know. That's a, I think that's what really attracted me to cycling for a long time was just mm -hmm. the total yeah. extreme nature of Everything like it, even if it was training and then diet, but also the equipment. Like, right. I was mentioning this to you the other night, like how when you went really obscure with equipment, you would find things that nobody else knew about, and then you felt like it was a secret weapon. Mm -hmm. Like, and you would, like the Nike shorts you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. You, you were telling me you're telling me you had something about the Nike shorts. Yeah. You, you listened yeah. to that, like. Yep. Yeah, because I had this bin of clothes that I. I still struggle with this bin of clothes. I haven't thrown it away yet, but I think about it because there was this time when I would collect a race bike from every every year since a I kit, a kit, a bike or a kit, both. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. So my garage was filled with bikes. So I had you had more than what? yeah. So I had a wow. race bike yeah. from every year since Primal Lines. So I got up to like ten race bikes. I kept the fully. Kobe. Uh, you no, Pinarello. I kept the Pinarello. Oh, the next year you were on okay. Pinarello. The first year we were on some crap copies. But then I had more of a Bismarck building something. Right. <laughs> so it didn't right, really right, matter. Right. So I don't think yeah. I ever actually got a Kobe, but Yeah. So I'm trying to replay all the bikes that I read. I like. Yeah. So you're so I did the same thing you did only only with kits. I had a giant duffel bag in my garage and I tried to keep yeah. a jersey from every team I was on. Yep. And somehow I figured that out from relatively young. I didn't I don't have them all. Sure. But I have most of them. And and to this day, the kit that you and I rode in in 98 on Car Cyclist is the ugliest fucking jersey I've ever it's ridden. It's really in. bad, yeah. Oh, Reese designed that jersey, and I hated it with a passion. I just, well, he went to jail, so I guess he learned his lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess I mean, I unrelated. Know. Unrelated note. <laughs> but, I love Reese, but, you know, serves him right. Serves him right for making that ugly jersey. I, I mean, people know me. Like, I'm, I'm kind of murdered out. I'm... I'm yeah, monotone in my color selection. You know, I like that, my though. wardrobe's mostly gray, shades of gray. That jersey was literally prime yellow, prime blue, and prime red. It was just an eyesore from the beginning. I mean, I just couldn't handle it. Anyway, but I have this. I have that collection of kits too, and I know what you mean about that. This is what's frustrating about the UCI because I I see the argument from both sides to a degree, but I think what's unique about cycling is, they, man, I'm so fucking glad Cookson got elected. I really hope that it trickles down from the top end and they stop getting rid of some of these rules. I don't know if it will. I have no idea if it will, but there's so many rules the UCI passed, which are, first of all, they've been of two, two natures, which I think is really frustrating. One is the sort of like, remember when they first passed the first like wave of like rules double just out of the blue, double triangle stuff, and group 2000 was formed, and they went, they formed this big group and they got all these manufacturers together and they had all these valid points to go to the UCI and they made this big dossier and requested this meeting, and the UCI was like, Meh. They didn't yeah. even they don't know. give a shit. Yeah. Now, 
you read JV's interview, the, the article he wrote on Cycling News about his experiences with Pat and Heim, and that's exactly the way they ruled the sport. It was pretty much like, this is our sport. Yeah. We rule it. If you don't like it, fuck off. Which is exactly the way kids are when they build a skate ramp in their own backyard. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you come over and you're like, hey man, can I ride on your skate ramp? And they're like, no, you're a dick. Go away. It's our skate ramp. You don't like it. Fuck yourself. Yeah. That's the way they ran it. Only the problem is, this is a world governing body. It was of the sport. only skate ramp in town. The yeah. only skate ramp in the entire planet. And that's why Johan and JV and some of the other directors were talking about starting another you know, affiliation of yeah, how come it died away? That died away for like, wasn't the Koch brothers into that or some some yeah. weird family? Oh no, it was the um, God, some family, some the Ro the Rothschilds. That's who got into it. it was a Rothschild. Yeah. Rothschilds <laughs> do, do you know you remember John Retzik? Yeah. You know he married a Rothschild. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I saw like one time on Facebook. <laughs> I saw Facebook once, he was like, oh, Dave, now in a relationship with, like, so-and-so Rothschild. And I'm like, no, that's a cool, that's a, just a one-off. And I, like, so I hit her button, and it was, like, from New York. And I was just like, they showed that, I'm like, really? Fucker. And, like, it was funny, because his profile instantly went from just, like, John Retzik bike racer to, like, just GQ cover shoots. Like, right. they were just in the most exotic locations all the time. Yeah. And then, yeah, like a month yeah. later, married to Emily Rothschild. So, yeah. You know, um, the girls that are worth it, though, they, they make you guys look good. Yeah. 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 We do need good girls to make us they look make good. You look good. <laughs> <laughs> it's just saying. I think girls in order to look, like, do you just, like, look at Colby and just, like, ah, this is going to take a little while. No, totally. He's hot. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, look at yeah. that. Thank totally. you. I had her. I, I had her. The, the monotone closet. She she walked in and saw that. That was a big. It was the evening space moment. hangers. Yeah. <laughs> you like the done? type A personality? You're like, like okay. Done. He's predictable. I know what he I wants. No. Just the attention Tidy? to detail. Attention to detail. Yeah. Which you, let's throw it out there. Friendly plastic. I'm a detail dork. <laughs> yeah, but that's what. I don't know. That's what I always. Uh, I wasn't as detailed, but I appreciated the detail. Like that's, I mean, when you're working in a sport with like one percent, it's everything. Do you feel like do you, we can't throw out the sky term, but it's what it comes down to. Yeah, you know what's funny is like the <coughs> I had a teammate talking about sky and the marginal gains. So I had a teammate, uh, Canadian guy, and typical Canadian, he was saying like, I really hope that sky fails. I yeah. Said, Why? He's like. Because everything they're doing with marginal gains, like, I don't want to have to wear a skin suit. <laughs> In the road race. Yeah, yeah. And he was just like, yeah. Because he knew that if they were successful, it meant like, okay, Everybody they have a point. Door and, out, yeah. And he would have to bro. have to wear L helmets and road races and yeah, like, yeah. visors and criteriums, and it's going to lead to. But that's bike racing. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of my point. Like, going back to where we were, like the UCI, like, okay, marathon running, like. Equipment plays almost no role in that. Yeah. Hockey, yeah, equipment plays a role, but not in a performance-enhancing way. Like in a, sure. it's not going to make or break the game. It just serves a function. Yeah. Cycling is relatively unique in that aspect. That it's a blend of the machine and the man, and it's natural for. I mean, you, it's a competitive sport, and there's money in it. There's there's time and investment and emotional energy in it. You're going to look for an advantage any way you can. And sometimes yeah. that advantage comes because you have this huge breakthrough in training, and you figure out that. You know, oh geez, I should have been doing these types of intervals or whatever. You know, every rider has those 
those ups and downs in their career. I, mm. I had years where I was like, I didn't really get any better. And then I had years where I was like, damn, what did I do? I, I just nailed it this year. And half of it was by design, half of it was by mistake. I don't know. But then there are other times where you, you get that magic piece of equipment, those Nike shorts or whatever you feel, or you find this aero bar or this yeah. weird crank arm. For some reason, you've got an immense amount of faith in it. Yeah, and you're like, man, this is going to this is gonna make a difference for me. And I mean, looking back on, on my, I think career is the wrong word. I mean, really? Well, I don't know. I mean, am I a fucking, what am I, an actor? Like, <laughs> okay, here's my, here's my favorite, favorite term that I read recently, uh, like last year from Gretchen Reeves. You know her, she's not my Chris? Yep. She, somebody was interviewing her for some paper or something. She said, ah, oh. they said, you know, def define your athletic status. And she said, well, I'm a recreational professional. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that because the fact is, I think that, yeah, of course there are professional cyclists who you can legitimately call professionals. They're people who are making, what, more than minimum wage, or at least enough to support themselves. Sure. Now, of course, support themselves relative to whether or not they have a wife and a family and kids, etc. Sure. If they're single guys, you they're can live off in life, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you can live off ramen for not very much money and call yeah. yourself a pro for 8K a year or whatever. Yeah. But the flip side is, I mean, if you boil it down, like how many years of my cycling did I actually make enough money to support myself? A livable wedge. Right. Yeah. Not so many. So, I mean, yeah, I made money during the sport and I made good money at times, but American professional, like, and a track racer. <laughs> yeah. I'm like the, the red-headed stepchild. I mean, I'm like barely, I'm like half a step above Cross. <laughs> and that's only in the last, that's only until the last six years when Cross exploded. <laughs> track is probably last now by a significant margin. I, I mean, mean, track is probably rolling <laughs> towards the bottom now. It absolutely is. I mean, even the six-day scene is dying slash changing. And I was really fortunate to be involved in it in one of the last, I think, waning years of its yeah. European success. Now it's it's molding. Hopefully it'll continue to live into something else next week. I'm going to LA to do that three day race. I'm super yeah, excited yeah. about that. I mean that's the first it'll be the first legitimate six day style event in the US. We're not talking about like the Portland six day. Sure. We're talking about legitimate yeah. and nothing not that the Portland six day is illegitimate, but what I'm saying is this is a race where they're bringing in riders from foreign countries, they're paying contracts, they're paying play, plane fares. The race has a budget. Yeah. Presumably, it's going to have entertainment. It's going to have a proper schedule. Hopefully, enough sure. crowds. Um, it seems like Jack's really doing a great job. Jack Signs is doing a really great job of promoting it. So I'm excited to, to do that. That'll be the first one that we've had in the states for. I have to ask him over three decades for sure. Yeah. But just to play like devil's advocate to that, like, is that a is that a successful business model or is it just like kind of a, a one-off thing? That is a good question. I mean, well. I would argue that it's got to be at least somewhat sustainable if you do it. I mean, in Europe, Dortmund went on for 30 years. Or sure, but you know, in, in Europe, a lot of guys can drive for the race, or they, they take a cheaper like, oh, Ryanair flight. Oh, you mean, did you mean from a promoter standpoint for, or a rider for LA, standpoint? For LA. But for riders or promoters? As terms for of promoters. For, I, I would assume it's got to be, because so many of the European six days were... Um, went on for so many years. I mean, you're right, yeah. you can attract a better rider base in Europe because they can drive in. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that Coors Classic problem of the year they that people say, like Connie used to tell me that the year the race died is when he took it to Hawaii. And it just uh, got too expensive, you know? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. like flying the entire 400 people or whatever to Hawaii. Sure. I mean, how much money could that have cost? I have no idea. Now, it right. made for a spectacular event, and they got to race in some amazing races. But, but it's a total one-off. Did like, it? Oh, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot here. Yeah, did it really did it increase the revenue of the race the following year, or the sponsor revenue? Yeah. Probably not, I would guess. I don't know. But I don't know. 
So that's a great time in history, though, when the race promoters just like, let's just go to Hawaii. <laughs> like, are you sure? Like, there's no red tape or legalese? No. Mm -mm. Let's just mm -mm. go. I got 400 tickets. <laughs> Here like, you go. It seemed like more like cowboyish and like pioneering back then. Mm -hmm. Where it's just like, no, no, I just. I assume we have 400 people at the in the in the race caravan, so I guess we got 400 tickets. Then, then we're going to San Francisco and race around the Presidio, and we're going to finish in Colorado. It's like, remember that guy showed up in Interbike that one year? He's like, we're going to have a tour of America. Oh, yeah. What fucking happened to that guy? You know, I'm shocked that never happened. <laughs> For some reason, offering like a half a million dollars of prize money. It was like, I was going to show up. <laughs> I just figured if I just finished the race, I should be able to pay off my house. Totally. Dude, if I just get like one top ten, I think you know, set no more mortgage payments. I mean, good for the guy for thinking big, but yeah. when that came out, everyone was even the articles that reviewed it were like, Let's he has just no see how this happens. Yeah, we'll have to look it up and like find that guy now. That's <laughs> what he, he didn't know. Yeah. He should have <laughs> got married one to a <laughs> When did you start racing then? So, so nineteen eighty eight was my first race, and I got hooked in through the course. And I, a friend of mine did the, what was called the Redzinger Mini Classics. Yep, I remember which was hearing a junior about those. Kids series, and Chris Weary did them, mm -hmm. and Vodders did them, and um, it's kind of how I met Vodders. And uh, so, funny story. So, like JV did his first mini mini classics or whatever. This was probably '88 or something like that. Same year, and he's uh, younger. So they had. It was like 10 through ages 10 through 15, and the 15s raced against the 15s and 14s, etc. So they have five different categories. And JV's out there doing the time trial, but they grouped you in these teams of four or five. They just put you, assigned you randomly in teams and tried to get the kids to sort of understand rudimentary teamwork and such. And JV is like the first team time or first time trial they did. They're like, yeah, you, you ride from here to there. And he's like, that's all you do. And they're like, yeah, okay. So he's out there just riding along in his little ring, and here comes Weary, his teammate, catches him instantly. He's like, dude. What are you doing? And he's like, I'm riding. He's like, you gotta go as fast as you can. He didn't know, you know. <laughs> and Potter's just like, oh, okay. And so then they're like drag racing each other on the line. <laughs> like, like he just thought it was a ride. He's like, did, yeah. wanted to prove a skill contest. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, I could show these guys I can, I can ride. ride. Line. I can totally ride eight miles. <laughs> so I'm gonna fucking ace this thing. I I watched my friend do that. I said I want to do that next year. I I conned my stepmom at the time into a um into Upgrading me to like instead of just buying me a bike to get to and from school, I got her to, to get me like an entry level race bike. Like a raceable bike, yeah. Just because it was cool. It was a Mishiki. Oh, yeah. I mean, it had like the full narrow tires. I can't remember the model now. God, I would love to have that bike this day to be a commuter. That would be the fucking coolest thing ever. But Zerbo has his. Yeah. Zerbo has his, his first, first race bike. Yes, oh. those guys. No, 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 not Zerbo. Bajadali. Mm. Bajadali's first bike was a stolen bike from a Norbro race. Nice. He, he stole it? No. He <laughs> bought it stolen. The guy said, hey, I stole this from a Norbra in Tahoe. Don't ride it around there for like a few months. That's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had a Trek 800. Trek 800 was my first one. Yep. Aluminum down tube. Yep. Yep. But, so you so you get the Nishiki and you do the, the Red Zinger. And I did the first. So they I signed up for the Red Zinger. It was like in July or whatever. And they had a practice criterium like a month before that to make sure all the kids were going to take each other out. And they kind of gave us some basic drills and stuff and show us how to go through corners and not cut the rest of the field off. And I did it, and I just was like, it, I remember it being the biggest adrenaline rush ever. I mean, yeah. I was just like in love with the sensation, the speed and the competition and everything. I think I got like eighth or something, I don't know, or tenth. But 
I didn't win, you know, I just finished in the group, but to me it was just like, awesome. I couldn't even sleep that night. I was so fired. I went home that night and was like, I'm shaving my legs, that's it, I'm a fucking biker. Right <laughs> How now. old were you? 15. 15. I was in love with it. Just what were you like as a kid? Were you like still like an analytical guy as a kid? Like were you, or were you? I don't, shit, I don't know. That's a, yeah. that's a question that requires objective introspection. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Always overthinking shit. And that was my thing. I mean, I get nervous in races early and I would just overthink and just lock up. Yeah. And my stomach would start to hurt and I'd be like, mm. oh. I wouldn't know what to do. You know, it took me a long time to get around that. Yeah. I battled that at a few nationals and stuff. I went to one TT nationals and just sucked ass. I think it was the year they were on some parkway, like the Blue Ridge Parkway, but it wasn't in North Carolina. It was in, doesn't that thing go through like three states or something? It was yeah. a good TT course. I mean, just like perfect, you know, smooth black top, 35K yeah. out and back or something. And I got there and it was like one of the seasons where I just had all these problems all spring and I was just feeling the form finally coming like the week before. Wasn't that year that was in like Mississippi or something, was it? Yeah, it might have been. Might have been. Like 98 or something? You know, 98 was the year we were on car cyclist and we and it was in Ohio and it was like Ohio. 109 degrees. That's right. It was in Ohio. And it was two laps and you or three laps and you told me on the first lap I was like smashing everybody by 40 seconds. You were, man. But I then, then like I just shit the bed. I just well, it was like 109 degrees and yeah, yeah it started out way too hot. I remember I didn't even use a time trial helmet for that. I just used my road helmet. Yeah. And I still won. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> just yeah. be able to pour. Those were the days traveling on the road with Jim Copeland. So that was, you were explaining this on one of your other podcasts to some, I don't remember which one it was I listened to, but it was like, it was a weird team because it was like, it was Clark Sheehan, yeah. right? Who you. was our racer, our, our, he He's was a marquee our guy. Yeah. yeah. And then it was me, I was like somewhere in between, like theoretically getting better, but also old enough to maybe mentor sort of. Yeah. And then it was Jim Copeland who was like retired, but still raced occasionally for fun. And he was driving suburban and taking surrounding was team manager. And then his girlfriend, Robin, who was our Swanee. And who was, <laughs> and then there was you and Pate, who I remember the first time I met you guys at some dark restaurant, like oh, no. a few blocks east of the training center. We like went to lunch. I drove down to the Springs and Jim was like, Hey, we're going to meet the rest of the team and go for a ride or whatever. I remember you and Pete like literally sat in the corner and did not speak, either one of you. Really? You were both like, I don't know if you were terrified or just nervous or what, both of you guys. I think I mean, we knew we were, were out of our element. You guys were young. Really I mean, young. 98, I was 17, 17 right? Yeah, Pete's 19. Yeah. And Jim was like, yeah, these guys are super talented, you know, they're, they're going to be really good. And I remember talking this big spiel and then kind of going, right? Right, Mike and Danny? And you guys were like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of staring at your napkins, you know? Yeah. I think you guys were just, it was classic. And then, you know who else was on that team? Fucking Phil Zychek. Phil Zychek was on the team, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Fuck, I forgot about that year. He was living in my basement. Oh, was he? Yeah, he lived in my basement that year. I think he was paying my dad like $100 a month to live in the basement. So, you know what was the worst so is how mean Peyton and I, do you remember how mean Peyton and I were? Yeah. yeah. We just brutalized that poor kid. <laughs> Uh, so disappointing. So, yeah, do you see, I heard he still lives in Boulder. He's like some. I, I tried. I actually, I've tried to contact him a couple of times about this podcast. Mm. He because it would be pretty interesting. Damo works on his bikes from time to time. Yeah, he's got a few townies and stuff he sends through whatever old Columbus or something. But I don't know. But you had you had a rough year that year in '98. I remember that. It was really up and down. Well, so I trained. 
97 was a year where this is one of those big picture perspectives below the bottom. 97, I, I kind of like, I trained what I thought was hard, but I just seemed to not be making any progress. I didn't get any better. My results were kind of like not that great. I only got fun at the end of the year. And I was like, you know what? 98, I am all in. I'm just going to fucking train like a maniac. I went to Phoenix for a month and trained with Patrick Ike. I remember that name. I don't know if I was... Huge dude who rode for Shackley that year in 98. Yeah. Big Dutch guy. Yeah. Like, total ruler, team time trialist. Used to ride for WordPerfect back in the day. Like, big, just massive Dutch dude. Just put down the power. So we just beat the shit out of each other for a month in, in, in uh, Phoenix. Like, northern Phoenix. Sure. Going all those rides out there to Bartlett Lake and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I was just miles, miles, miles. I was all about, like, miles and hard zone, too. Like, like brisk zone two. Sure. It's pretty much all I did. And I was doing 200K solo rides in March and April in Colorado when I got back, like regularly, like once yeah. a week for sure. I'd ride to Fort Collins and guys would call me later that day and be like, dude, was that you? I saw you in Fort Collins by yourself. I'm like, yeah, what the fuck? And I remember going to some early season races and being like, the first big one was Vicelli. Remember that road race? Yeah. It was like the world fucking championships. It really was. And that race was never that suited to me, ever. It was actually pretty much the anti-Colby course, really, in a lot of ways. So this is 97 or 98? This is 98. Okay. Sorry, and and I'm, I'm all trained and primed, and I'm like, I'm going to smash this thing. And I got, like, 19th in Visalia, which now was my best result ever in that race. But at the time, I was really disappointed because I was showing up there, like, breathing fire. And I was all crushed after the road race, and I yelled at my coach, who was Dave Morris at the time. I didn't yell at him. Wow, I didn't know you were coached by Dave Morris. Just only for, like, that winter. Yeah. And he, he's Dave's a, he was a great coach and he was really good and I but I feel like really I was just venting and he took it at as him being failing exactly. at the job. Yeah. And I feel bad about that because we like lost contact after that and to this day I still feel like I owe him an apology. But so Dave, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I didn't I wasn't yelling at you. I was I just ran, frustrated. I randomly talked to him uh, this year. You did? He's in uh, it's a pretty famous town out east where people go train. Boone. He's in Boone. Okay. He's yeah. in Boone doing that. He's coaching and... He's, yeah, teaching at the college there. Sports for the Smart guy. Or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? He's, he's capable of thinking out of the box for sure, which you have to be as a trainer and a coach, I think. Yeah. So, so, you, so you do vice Anyway, the next well. day, I get in the... I, I'm, like, all crushed after the road race. and like, oh, I'm nowhere near as good as I thought I'm going to be this year. You know, it was, like, the first big flagstone event of the year. Yeah. The next day, I, like... I'm just coasting in the criterion, like breathing out of one nostril. I make the break, drive the break, and force it to the line, but I just get waxed in the sprint. So I'm like, so I get fifth, but I'm like driving the fuck out of the break. And that was my theme all spring. I was like, there were several races where I did that. And Tour of Flor, I almost got away with murder at Tour of Flor. I almost won the crit there. Like, attacked the break, I've gotten like a 12 man break that I started, drove the shit out of it, and then I hit him early, hit him long, and then Julian Dean got it. Came around me in like the last 300 meters with like an 800 meter sprint, of course. Sure. Julian, that was the year Julian won like every race. Yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah. Anyway, blah blah blah. Had a few other of those. Did a Fitchburg too, and then, but then, right around, things got really bad in about June. I I was like still like, I'm gonna keep the miles up, keep the miles up. I went to Holland for a couple weeks, did a couple races there. Got back and I was really jet lagged and tired, but I was like, I just didn't know enough to like back it off. Yeah. And I forced it. And it dug me in a hole that I was fighting the rest of the year. Like, I had this chronic, not chronic fatigue in the medical sense, but, like, every time I went really deep, I could just tell. I was like, oh, I'm Just fucked. a malaise. Just yeah. A, yeah. And then we had our team race, which was the dumbest stage race in the universe. I can say this now. 
It consisted of Mount Evans on Saturday and a business park criterium on Sunday, for, and it was dude, a stage race. You're forgetting something. You oh. forgot the Garden of the Gods. Oh, you're right. How could I possibly Friday. forget that? Sorry, Saturday, the worst road race ever made for Colby Pierce, personally. The Garden of the Gods road race. Like, anti-Colby squared. Anyway, I could probably do okay on it when I was things were normal, but I, I... So that week, I was, like, feeling this pressure to perform, and it was one of those, like... I, I should have just stayed in bed all week and yeah. saved every iota of energy, and I probably would have been okay yeah. and able to help you or Danny or something. Yeah. But instead, I was like, I'll just do one five-hour ride, you know? It'll break me through. And I showed up the line. It was just, has just nothing. Dead. Just dead. nothing. No legs. Anyway. I mean, I I felt abysmal at Mount Evans. Like, so... Not yeah. not even just, like, feeling bad, but, like, in a... I think I might actually be doing permanent damage kind of way. Like, I should not be on the bike right now. But that race is like that because you climb so high. You probably always feel that way. Was it weird, like, was it weird being at that point where you're, like, you, you have a... Um, I think there's a point, like, in every guy's career where you're like, fuck, fuck, this isn't working out at all, <laughs> you know? And then you see, like... Because Peyton and I at that time were, like, pretty... I, I couldn't imagine being older and being around this. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine what that was like. I remember going into your room in Santa Rosa at one point and, like, there were lamps were knocked over. There were cookies ever. You guys said this thing about throwing cookies. You were like hawking cookies at everybody always. And there was like shit broken in the room. And I'm like, what the fuck? The whole room looked like it had been trashed. <laughs> Only you guys had just been staying in it. <laughs> and I was like thinking like, man, is Jim going to go ballistic on these guys or what? And it just, it seemed to never come to a head. And I was like, oh, like, the, like whatever. Doug was like... <laughs> It was a big reason Doug was giving him all the money was because he Doug lied ducks. Right. So like there was only so far. Yeah. I just I still I can't. Yeah. I, I think back at that and I like I cringe a little bit. Like, <laughs> that must have been fucking weird. <laughs> that must have been weird for those guys. I don't know. I was at that point I was so I was very very versed in my own little universe and I yeah I didn't have the maturity or perspective to kind of see that much outside of. Like I could see moments, yeah. but I didn't have the, the, yeah, I guess perspective to really look at the team at the whole and sort of see you guys and give you guys a kick in the ass at the right moment or, yeah, yeah. or ignore you during the wrong moments or whatever. Right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't have that yet. You know what one crazy memory I have for this and not to like bring it to a downer, but cause it's just, it's forever burned in my brain because it might be the first time where I genuinely felt bad as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> like and it happened with Colby Pierce. Let's hear it. We were uh, we did the uh, we were rooming together at Fitchburg that year. Yep. And we're staying at this hotel. You and I were. Yeah. Okay. And I was I think I was seventeen, and I had the ride of my seventeen-year-old life in the TT. TT. I think yep. I got like fifth yep. in a pro race. Yep. And you didn't do so well, and you were really bummed out, and I could tell yep. you were bummed out. Yeah. I felt really weird, like, oh, fuck, like, yeah. I shouldn't beat Colby in a time trial. This isn't what's supposed to happen. <laughs> like, all right, well, like, just be cool, Mike. Like, be cool. Like, don't act happy in front of Colby, <laughs> right? And we get back to the hotel. So this is before cell phones, obviously. Right. And the lady calls, and she's, I, for, for all those listening, like, I don't have a relationship with my mom. Like, just, we don't talk. And the... The lady goes, oh, uh, your mom called. She says, call her. And I'm like, well, it's not talking about me. 
that's me, Colby. And then you're just like really down and like down and like, oh, hey, Colby. Uh, the lady called and uh, the front desk and she said, um, your mom called and it's not, I, I don't think it's me. So it's probably you. And you're like, no, I don't think it's me, man. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, well, no, dude, it's cool because I don't really talk to my mom. And you're like, well, I don't talk to my mom either. She's dead, Mike. <laughs> And I remember, like, kind of waiting for you to laugh and be like, no, I'm joking, I'm going to call mom. And then you didn't, and I remember, Dead like, I just went out to my room. Like, I went out of the room, I left the room, and I was like, it's like the first time you have the head spins when you're a kid, and you're like, I don't know what to do right now. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. I feel like I really fucked up. Like, I went and told Danny, I'm like, I don't think I can go back in the room. Having a crisis, oh, this is the first time I've felt bad in my life. Well, that's hilarious. I had no idea that happened, honestly. Really? I mean, Dude, I that's just like told so you and... scorched in my brain. <laughs> Isn't that weird how we have those experiences? That, yeah, like we, I mean, it's kind of like we were talking about with that Jim Miller, Danny Pate, the race win thing at Niwot, and the two different stories you guys had. Yeah, which is an awesome, but. It's Do you so remember funny. how pumped we were on after he won Niwot? No, like I don't think I was there because I, I I heard that podcast with Jim and you told that whole story and I have zero memory that I'm positive okay. I wasn't. So you must have been there. Yeah, I think I was in Holland. Okay, but I'm you remember sure. like when we were racing oil? Man. Oh, dude, it was and like epic rivalry all year. And they would the come one, out so many. This times. is the one I remember. Is Tell me. Grand Junction? We did the road race. This is epic, and it's like nine of them and nine of us, and it's Eddie Gregus and yeah. they had Clark Sheehan and they had Dougie Z. And they Gerlock. had Gerlock, and they had uh, Fisher. Casually. Sometimes. Was Casually in their team? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. So, and then it's you and me and Paid and, you know, Phil and, and Jim and Clark, and we're all lined up. And remember that road race starts out with what they call Nine Mile Hill, so it's this, yeah. it's like 3 or 4%, just hard enough to make it hard when you're hitting yeah. it. And we're going, boom, 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 we're attacking, and it's it's literally the 18 of us and a bunch of local dudes who are just hanging on for dear life going, oh, Jesus, this is horrible. And... We're playing this stupid game where we both have to be in the break. Well, obviously, we're both going to have Ian numbers in the break. Yeah. There's nine, nine of us on each team. So, finally, Sheen gets away with, I think it was Dougie Z. I don't remember who it was from Wyoming. And we're all looking at each other, you know, with our chest faces. And they kind of start to roll away a little bit. And then we go, and the road's really windy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Dougie Z flats, right? Now, there's like 80 miles to go in this race. So, he comes back, gets a wheel, gets back in the field, but Clark's up the road. This is a great story. I know this is going. And, is and so we're riding, and the road's windy, and, you know, all these, like, at first they're like, whatever, you know. We're just but at the top, so at the top, the reason we're racing at the top, there was a $100 lottery premium. So okay. 100 lottery tickets. Okay. Oh, that's what it was. Yes, I do remember that. So yeah. everybody wanted a race wanted for, to do it, just for the but it was, yeah. it was like 70 miles to go at the top, mm -hmm. so you didn't want to go full stick. Right. But you wanted to get 100 lottery and it was And it was like a long valley. There was lots of chances yeah. to bring things back. So... But we get up to the top, and, and then it's all of a sudden the road opens up, and we can't even see Clark. He's gone. He's just gone. He's got like a minute and a half at least. And Oilney's like, oh, shit. And they start, they put one guy in the front and two and three, and they're starting to roll, starting to roll. And I'm like, holy shit, Clark is flying, you know? Yeah, because we've been going like we've been going like three or four mm -hmm. miles at this point, and yeah. we, we, you'd come to a turn in the road, you turn, you could see a mile on the road, yeah. still can't Couldn't see Clark. I drift to the back, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, last wheel, there's Clark. And I'm like... What are you doing back here? Either? Man, I had to take a shit. So he pulled off the road and just hid behind a bush. He's like, I figured I had 85 miles to go. I already got the preem or whatever. I'm like, 
fuck it, you know, rather than stay out here all day and just get chased down, he's like, I'm gonna well, take care of my business. And then, so he's the back. So they chased for like another, I don't know how long it was. It was dude, I think they chased for at least 10 miles and they started popping. So one by one, and these one guys dude start... goes back and sees Clark. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's yelling and screaming. And then we started over again. Do you remember what happened though? So, like, oil me starts popping. Their yeah. guys. Yeah. One guy goes all the way to the back, sees Clark, right. sprints back sprints to the front, right. and says, Clark, Clark, Clark's at the back. He's been there. There's nobody back. off the front. There. So the whole race stops. Clark takes a flyer from the back <laughs> <laughs> and just totally hit out. Oh, I'd never been like that was the kind yeah. of influences Peyton had. Where, yeah. Like we just from the beginning, you're like, oh, okay, bike racing's a joke. This <laughs> is bullshit. You can't take this too seriously. This, is, this thing we're doing yeah. is not real. It's and you can see that in Peyton's attitude now when he shows up. Remember that I wasn't there this year, but I heard about the year he did the Estes race. And he was leading the fucking race, and he's riding around with one pin on each number in the middle. Yeah. And multiple times people... He stole that said, bit, by the way. He oh, stole that bit from Bowman. Hey, that's a Bowman. Oh, that's a Bowman. Yeah. Do credit. Give him to Dan Bowman. Yeah. I mean, it's like, hey, Dave, why don't you have more pins in your numbers? Well, they only gave me one for each number, you know? <laughs> ah, ah, you know, and they're clapping in the wind. Yeah. the race leader jersey on, of course. Paid. <laughs> fucking funny. You gotta love it. When did you get in the track? So I... When I first went through my little 98 phase, 89 phase, I was like, I love bike racing, I'm a total bike dork. And I just, I mowed some lawns, I scrounged together, I robbed some drugstores, whatever I had to do, and I got, I got a cross bike, a used, like, piece of shit cross bike, a used piece of shit mountain bike, and I got a track bike. And I was like, I'm just going to try them all, and I'm going to do them all, you know, it'd be good for me. Because I just, I was convinced, like, I didn't know I was, I didn't, I wasn't one of those kids who was like, I'm going to race the Tour de France. I just knew that I wanted to be a bike racer. I didn't yeah. know to what end that would end up. I didn't, yeah. I didn't dream as far as like wearing the yellow jersey or anything like that. I was like, yeah. I just want to race my bike. Yeah. So I started driving to the Springs, you know, when I got a car and just racing. Yeah. And that was my first experience was racing on the track in the Springs. And 98 was a pivotal year for me because... At first, I thought I was going to be a pursuiter because I was kind of a TT guy and I had this Bostic influence and GB yeah. and all that. And for a couple of years, man, like 93, 94, I was, on the, I was on the fringe of making the national team pursuit team, but I never fit in enough. I was too weird for Craig to deal with and had my own shit going on. And I, I didn't understand that when a coach kind of threw you a little bone that you had to be hungry and pursue it. Yeah. You know, young riders, it's amazing to me how many of them don't get it. And I was just as much of an idiot. But it's like when someone who's in the sport and has been in the sport for decades or is in a position of power throws you, shows you a little interest, you can't just accept that tacitly. You can't, you can't just take that and say, okay, thanks. You have to aggressively show that person that you are interested in what they have to offer you. Yeah. Even if down the road you decide you don't want whatever they have to offer you, that's fine. But as a young rider, and I'm saying this so that young riders can hopefully hear this, and if a manager shows you a little interest, or if a, uh, whether that's a national team manager or a trade team manager, whether a coach shows you a piece of advice, man, even if you don't necessarily agree with it, like you're wise to just listen and take it for what it is and, and apply it wherever you can. And if they're in a position to possibly benefit your career, like take advantage of that. I didn't get that. Craig showed me a little bit of interest, and then I'd see him like months later and he'd be like, where you been? And I was like, what yeah. you, I was all confused, you know, like, Oh shit! I guess I didn't do something I was supposed to do, and now it's easier because you can just email somebody or text them. But yeah, yeah. <clears throat> back then, I would have had to pick up the phone, call Craig, and Chase like, "Hey, man, how's it going? You know, I just want to let you know that I'm doing this and this or whatever." Yeah. But anyway, so 
I tried team pursuit for a couple years. I tried individual pursuit for a couple years. I was thought that was going to be my thing. I didn't want to really deal with points race and scratch race or whatever. Mass start stuff kind of, I was a little bit maybe afraid to do those at the national level. But I just didn't have the raw power. I was yeah, the pursuit is <coughs> is mistakenly thought of as a time trial game, but really it's just a sprint game. It's, it's a high end. If you look at the world class pursuers, I mean, they're all they've all got like forty pounds of muscle on me, yeah. and they're all amazing lead out guys. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're and they're big dudes. You got to have the raw power. They're big lead out guys, exactly. You know, they're like they're Bartko or whatever. They're yeah, like, you know, and so I didn't. So I, I, you know, I was doing that, and I was getting my ass kicked by Dirk Copeland. Like I was always like eighth or ninth, like behind Craig's seven dudes. Yeah, yeah. At nationals every year. Did you do like the EDS Cup or whatever that was? Not until later when I was with Shackley. Yeah. Yeah. Like the first five or whatever. Ninety. Well, ninety-five. I was on tie chain. Ninety-six. I was on Shackley. Ninety-six, ninety-seven. We did EDS cups. Yeah. And I started racing track there, and I was more of a support role for Jamie at the. I was still trying to do pursuit. Yeah. But I was supporting Jamie like at the Olympic trials. We had this massive battle in T-Town. They had two points races for the Olympic team. I remember that. And it was 12 national team dudes against 12 Shackley guys pretty much. Or not that many. It was like 8-8 eight eight or whatever. But again, divided Peloton and the rest of the dudes were just there. And it was one of the craziest races I've ever done. It was like Mariano trying to take us into the judges stand and everybody hooking the shit out of each other. And uh, Mike McCarthy and... Christian and against me and and well Kent on the pursuit, so he didn't do the mass start stuff. But what was it like? So if you had like these two big teams against each other, like what was it like? It was like a roller derby. Because the roller derby, because you could block dudes, you know. But like, but the infield's such a small area. Like you have to run into each other. You oh, have yeah. to run. Like tensions were. It was amazing. There wasn't a huge fist fight. I mean, it was, and there was a lot on the line. I mean, there was everything on the line. Like, was there guys. like was there just a huge storyline that went along with it? Well, like, oh, this guy's a jerk because of that, and you'd be like, yeah, yeah, all these reasons Absolutely. set up. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the national team guys, and I show up to the first points race on my Lotus, put mass start bars on it, yeah. and an arrow helmet, and freaking like, I mean, and Scott Rakes, remember those things? Oh yeah. I mean, it was like candy from a baby at that point because yeah. I was working for Jamie, so I could literally chase down anybody and just get on the front and be like, Rrr. yeah. So I was. I mean, and the next day, all those guys showed up with their, their aero bikes built up as... Sure. Because they realized, they were like, holy shit, you know, it was an arms race. But for them, they were fighting to get another guy on the team so they could take a fifth guy for team pursuit at Atlanta. Yeah. So for them, it was really high stakes. I mean, they had been going for this, and the poor guys. I mean, Craig tells them, look, we're going to ride a 408, and all their jaws drop when he tells them that two years before Atlanta. And he's like, no, we're going to do it. We're going to, or maybe it's either 408 or 411. I can't remember the exact times. I'm not Jamie when it comes to this shit. <laughs> I remember the concept, not the exact details. Sure. But it was some time that made their jaws hit the floor, right? Christian will tell you. And and they were all like, there's no way. And Craig said, no, we're going to do it. We're going to ride this time. We're going to get a medal in Atlanta. And they were like, okay. And it took them months and months. And they trained and they trained. And then they got the super bikes, which was a billion dollars and this and that, $40,000 a bike. And... They the fast, I mean, they were the fastest fucking bikes in the world. And the poor yeah. guys went in there and just got ass-raped by a bunch of, you know, Italians with 90 hermetocrits. Yeah, yeah. That was the height of the Evo era. I mean, they just got... Those guys are out there with these fucking... Crazy super... Crazy superman positions with, like... They were built out of, like... What's that, like, Richter kits and shit? I mean, yeah, They had, yeah. like, 74 tubes on those things. They were the most unaerial things ever. But when you're riding with a... A yeah. crit of 90, it doesn't matter. I mean, you just, you know, diesel power. Colinelli just smashed everybody. Yeah. And what the Italian woman's name, I can't remember her name. 
What's it like Bontanelli or something like Ber- that? Bernatulli or something. Something like that. But they just showed up with those Rudy Vader helmets. Yeah. <laughs> I got one of those. <laughs> I made sure to get one of those. And they just annihilated everybody. And the Italian team did the same thing. And the Americans like got like eighth or something. Everyone was crushed. Well, I mean, it's sad that, that Steve Johnson witnessed that era. And now he's the CEO of USAC. And I know that plays for me working there and having conversations with him. I know that plays currently into the climate of our not contesting Team Pursuit internationally, which is unfortunate because he sees it. He was there for that whole, and I get it. I can how see much it. money was put into how it? How much time, money, resources, I mean, everything. The USAC, they literally went sky's the limit, and they got nothing for it. But the biggest reason they got nothing is the Poe, yeah. had nothing to do with, I mean, it was a valiant and valid effort. They tried to do things the right way. Yeah. Anyway. So... So you did the track, but you also well, you did, did the track. hour record. So, well, I did it in, so 94 was my first year that kind of started to get some, I don't suck. And then 95, I did the hour record. And that's so funny, because I remember you taking, I was there when we did the hour record in 95. I remember you taking like a photo. Yeah, of everybody who was there. I still yeah. have those photos. Yeah. You have to look, I'm in the background yeah. somewhere. Like yeah, totally. 95 and 13 years yeah. old. I thought it was so cool, because yeah. there was this guy, Colby Pierce, and he had like the Lotus bike. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking like, it was oh. dorked out. Yeah, totally dorked out. Even by today's standards, that bike is fucking pretty you know, damn fast. You were one of the first riders to go to the wind tunnel, man. Yeah, I like, and for a couple of years, I just I just trounced the field in time trials, and honestly, a lot of it was because. And Kashar is the one who pointed this out to me. He's like, dude, you were way out of the curve aerodynamically. He's like, you were arrow, you were flexible enough to get in the opposition and still produce some power there. He's like, you were just. Mm-hmm. That was before people really figured out aero bars on the average. So people would just put them on their road bikes and ride, and they were just plowing through the air, killing themselves. And I was out there just slicing. And yeah. and it had some to do with the wind tunnel, but also to do with just GB and I like dorking out. I mean, this was a year where my training took a huge jump because, <coughs> excuse me, in 94 was when the SRM first came out, really, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it started before that, but when it started to become like a commercial product that like you could available. conceivably yeah. get. Yeah. So Fault 94, I mean, as far as I know, I got the first one to borrow from Leonard Zim, but the battery died. But JV and I ordered SRMs from Germany. He convinced me to do it, and somehow we found the money to do it. We were the first guys in the U.S., to my knowledge, that got them after Le Mans. <laughs> and we had these SRMs. I'm like, this thing's fucking awesome. I don't know what, what the hell to do with it. And then JV hired Adrian Van Diemen, who still works with Garmin today, to write him a training program, which I poached properly, yeah. promptly. And... Uh, and that was our organized training for 95. And it was That's all amazing. weightlifting and VO2 and five-minute intervals, and and we went crazy. And uh, and I think it's time for another round. I think it's time for another round. So we, we do this all year, and we're like, we're smashing this, that, and whatever. And I'm TTing like a maniac and doing my thing. At the end of the year, I decided I'm going to do the hour record. And I went to Moriarty that year, and I tried to break Fry's 40K record, and I was 13 seconds off. I was there. Yeah. You were there? I was there. Oh, man. I, was, I, I almost went back this year. I went for the 13-14 record. Yeah. Did you get it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, 87 oh, Nice. <laughs> That's fast. I remember riding at 27-45, getting second behind Bobby Julek at States one year. Yeah, but by the time oh, I came wow. on, I had, like, disc wheels. <laughs> I had all that crazy shit. I literally, yeah. No, there were, uh, there were no disc wheels for me then, but anyway. So... My dad and I would drive and sleep in our car like the, at Moriarty because we had like no money, mm-hmm. but we just would, we'd figure out whenever Moriarty was. 
It, you had to get up at five in the morning anyway for the damn thing. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So they still have it. <coughs> I almost went this year. I went to Steamboat instead. I was like this close to going down, but I don't own a car. And when I had to rent one, it would have been like five hundred dollars for this. Uh, but I was. I felt like I had the form to potentially challenge Fry's record, which still stands. I know. I know, right? It's like. Remember that's how, that's how what happened. Year, road trip. Next year, <laughs> I won Steamboat this year, so I'm over that. They would like it would be this incredible like full circle thing to do. But like, well, that's my idea with the R record. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just that's the best the, that your flood happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the problem with the sometimes it's like a bit sad when you do the full. You feel like a bit, a bit like pathetic. You're like you're like, chasing your tail. Yeah, you're just like oh. But that's cycling. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what is cycling? Cycling is cyclic, not to sound but too... But you went to the Olympics. Yeah. I mean, is that for you? I mean, for most athletes, I mean, cycling's a little different because at the Olympics only comes around, there's so many other things, mm -hmm. but it's still got to be, in my mind, what do you think, like the well, hour record or the, or the... That's a good question. I mean... The Olympics. So, well... Like in '98, I made I, I made the break in those NRC crits and whatever, and it happened to be a recurring theme. But I was I could never be like I could never win. Yeah. I was like, fuck. How am I gonna How am I gonna do? I felt like it was the first '98 was the first year where I made real significant headway in NASCAR races on a national level, and I was like, I'm getting good, but I suck at sprinting. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there's that old saying like you can make a you can make a, a miler out of a sprinter. No, wait, you can make a 10k out of a sprinter, but you can't make a, a sprinter out of a 10k or whatever, 5k. Sure. You know, like I got a little lost, but okay. Well, I got you. point being is like you you can either sprint or you can't. Yeah. You and yeah. you know, if you can't fucking sprint, there's nothing you can really do about it. You can hit the gym, you can do all kinds of sprints. Yeah. And you're still you're gonna make your way out of a paper bag, but that's about it. Yeah. I mean, and and so for me, I was kind of like, I I can't do it. I can't. You. I welcome sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, you know. And so for in 98, I was like, what am I going to do? And then one day it dawns on me. I'm like, dude, it's right in front of my face. Points racing is like, I just I just had this intuition that it's going to suit me really well, you know? Yeah. Because there are lots of sprints instead of one. <laughs> and I'm like, I can do that better. And it's an arrow guy event. And the speed's higher. And I'm arrow. And all these factors. And I just decided, 99, I'm in. I'm in. I'm going to do, I'm going to focus on the track. Yeah. And I went for it all year. And I... Trained really well, and 99 actually was one of my best years ever. I I got third at the FBD Milk Ross Tour of Ireland. Oh, yeah. One of my best rides, but I was riding those power pedals, and the cleat had gotten really worn, and my 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 foot got kind of fucked up, and I got this big knee injury. Took me out for, like, a month. What was the I, concept behind power pedals? So they had a cam that locked so that you couldn't pull your foot. You can only rotate one way. You can only pedal one way. So at the bottom of the stroke, when you went to lift your heel, the cam would lock, and it would give you an extra lever arm, the length of the crank plus the length of the sole of your shoe, but only for a moment at the bottom of the crank. Mm. So it's supposed to give you this extra moment of leverage to pull through at the bottom. And they worked really well once you adapted to them, but they were heavy as balls. The cleats were brass. I mean, they were really heavy, and they had this huge I remember the brass bearing on the inside that was a one-directional bearing that would lock instantly, mm -hmm. but it kicked you way out, so the key factor was ridiculous. So you had to like drill holes in your shoes and do all this other ridiculous shit to geek out on them. And so I used those, and they worked great, but they gave me tendonitis really badly in my left knee when they got, they got so worn, I didn't notice it during the race, that my foot started to camp in, uh -huh. which was like, and then my knee came in, and that was it. You should bring those back. Let's bring <laughs> back our home. <laughs> They're a good idea, but you gotta find a better way to do them. 
The guy's name was a uh, Norway guy. He used to sponsor me. Uli Ospos. 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 <coughs> yeah. So anyway, then I, 99.80 track, I win my first national title. Points race. Yeah. Racing against Adam Laurent, won at T-Town. I remember it really well. And that was a big moment for me. And then I went to my first track World Cup, which was in Fiorenzola. Um, fucking Martinelli won. I got like, I think I got 10th. But the big thing was I got off the track, and this is one of the year last year's Craig coached. I got off the track, and I was like, I immediately had this intuition, like, I can win one of these. Yeah. I knew, based on the ride that I did and who was there and how it had gone, that I hadn't really ridden in my potential, and I still got 10th. I was like, I can win one of these. And I said that to Craig, and he looked at me like I was from Mars. He did not believe me at all. And in 2001, I went to Columbia, and I won a World Cup. It was my first win in Columbia. And oh. I beat Ynaris yeah. and uh, Stoker. Both of whom, Nearest was multi-time world champion. Right. He was like, who the fuck is this guy, you know? That was super cool. And then I started racing massive with Jamie. And then in 04, I went to Sydney. That was great. Did the punch race there. Super cool experience. I mean, our record versus Olympics? It's a tough call. The Olympics, like, has the the broad appeal, you know? Like, there's mm -hmm. not anybody who doesn't. There's, mm -hmm. there's nobody that doesn't know about the Olympics. Right. And it's so many people have that, you know, that dream. Like, I'm going to make the Olympic team. I mean, I talk to guys all the time about that. Yeah. What was it like for you when you, when you started coaching? So you you went from, you went from the Olympics, and then mm -hmm. you you took some time out, and you started coaching at the USA Cycling. Well, no, there was no time out. <laughs> yeah. I I went to the Olympics in '04, and then they were going to have Worlds in LA, and in they opened the track, the Velodrome in LA in '04. That right. summer, trained on a few times, shot a TIA Craft commercial there, which is right, fun. I forgot about the TIA Craft bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, uh, and then, I went to in '05. They were going to have worlds there in March, so I said I got to do that, and then I'll probably be done racing. You know, that yeah. was kind of my thought. Race worlds in home country. Yeah, yeah, and I, I almost beat the Olympic chance. So the guy who won the, the points race, Iggy Ignatiev, um, Russian guy, he won the points race in Athens. I came really close to beating him in the World Cup in LA in January. Yeah. Like really close. In fact, I really had a beat, but I made a tactical error with a 10 to go sprint. And then on the last sprint, I just got fucked by his Lithuanian teammate in disguise. But anyway, whatever. Yeah. I screwed it up, but I got silver. It was still a really cool ride. And then I got the Worlds, and I was just, man, it was so frustrating. It was one of those worlds where, it, like, everything was just 1% off. You know, just tweak just that little bit. I had pretty good legs. I was fit. I was healthy, which is a rarity for me at Worlds, it seems. And anyway, I did like nine World Championships or something. Most of them were fucked up somehow. <laughs> but so then Pat offered me a job to work for USA Cycling as a track endurance coach. Yeah. And I took that starting in November. I went to the World Cup in Russia, in Moscow, and got a silver in the points race and rode with Chad Hartley and Madison. I think we were like 10th or 12th or something. And then I took the job like the next week. Yeah. Yeah. And started coaching. What was that like? How did you, how did you like that job? I, there were big pros and cons to that job. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, the biggest pros and the biggest cons. Biggest pros were working with the athletes. Like I enjoyed working with the athletes. I loved it. You know, it was fun for me. It was challenging for me. Um, you have a lot of knowledge and you, you like sharing it. It's not something that you bogart. You really I, go out of your way to help. It's always been kind of my perspective is like, why not help people? You know, yeah. that's, I don't know, to me that just seems to come pretty naturally. So I try to do that and I seem to have a good rapport with most of the athletes and I, I seem to get along with, I got along great with Pat and Jim Miller and 
and that was good. The minuses were that the travel was hard. Um, being away from home was hard. You know, I mean, I have a daughter who, at that time, she was, it was 2005, so she was six, seven. I mean, that's, you know, she's old enough to start really knowing where dad's gone and when he yeah. comes home and stuff like that and missing him. And, and, uh, and while I'm gone, you know, my wife's basically being a single parent. So that's, that's rough. There was a lot of travel involved in that. And it's totally one of those situations where they're like, yeah, we're going to outlay this. And it's going to be this, this, and this, and this. And then they're like, oh, but now we have to have camps for those four events. And then we have to have a summer camp. And then we have to have camp pre-world. I mean, I literally lived in one of the hotels in LA mm-hmm. for a month in January of 06. The entire month. It was an intro, a, Devo, a Devo camp, then a pre-World Cup camp, then a World Cup, and then a post-World Cup pre-Worlds camp or something like that. It was just like fucking hotel for a month yeah. you know I literally bought like a toaster oven so I could make my own breakfast in my room because I got so sick of eating and it's LA like food is impossible to find there without driving you can, you can find great food if you want to drive 25 minutes each way for yeah. every meal yeah. <laughs> otherwise it's like it's, Starbucks and a gas station it's funny in LA when you're like they're like oh it's seven miles away so you like you do Colorado time Right. Like, oh, Colorado seven miles is seven like minutes. Twelve minutes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you go to LA and you're like, oh no, oh. seven miles is about thirty five minutes. Right. <laughs> like, oh that's not And that's right. unless you get caught in a hotel for a month. Literally a month. It was it's rough. What I are mean, you thinking when you he's talking about this for a month and like gets to the point where you're he's not enjoying himself and then you're not enjoying it, we just finally say, Well fuck this, come home. The hardest part for me was that he was unhappy traveling. Yeah. As much, you know, it was un- it was hard to be at home, feeling like, okay, I'm supporting him in his job, and then hearing him be unhappy. Yeah, you're not going to support yeah, him life being unhappy. Exactly. So yeah. that that was the most difficult thing to see. And then also, what he didn't mention yet is he didn't get to ride his bike as, that much. Yeah. So he's doing all this work and at a desk and you know driving and stuff like that, not getting that physical kind of outlet that he was used to. I mean, since you were a kid, I mean, like that's totally. and that's I'm I'm bike dork for life, man. Like yeah. I don't own a car right now, you know, and I'm happy. Yeah. As a clam, not driving. Like I love riding my bike everywhere. I prefer to ride my bike, and it's it's a pretty normal, natural thing for me. So I've realized from a lifestyle perspective, I've just to keep my sanity, my release is to be. It doesn't even necessarily have to be on the bike. It could be a trail run theoretically, but it has to be a physical release. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm finding that hard with being a director. It's like, I don't want to be one of the directors who, because as a rider, like, uh, I've I've had team directors who had to ride every day. Right. And to the detriment of the team sometimes, where the guys get back to the hotel and they don't know what the fuck's going on. Right. Because the director's off riding. Because the director's off riding. So, like, I'd always notice that. And it's like, you could go Wolberg and set up a trainer and sell stuff on eBay at the same time. (laughs) Right, right. And I, While you have your team meeting. Yeah. Russian step, boys. <laughs> Russian step. What does that even mean? Wolberg says that all the time. And when you go to the front, yeah, you, you gradually accelerate. 17, then yeah. you go 15, yeah. 14, 13, 12, 11, until there's no one left. And guess what? I love Wolberg at that. I know. But he's the worst tactician in history. <laughs> Who uh, doesn't love Wolberg? Thousand sit-ups a day, personal goal of mine. That guy's a psychopath. <laughs> he... I've He's never, a legend. Have you ever seen him eat a meal? Eric Wolberg is a legend. Oh, yeah. no dinner for me tonight, guys. I'm just going to have a shackly shake, eh? 
He's, I'm, I think I mentioned before in the podcast, he's one of the few guys who could turn like an eating disorder masculine. <laughs> you know, normally it's like, oh, the teenage girl thing of like, whatever. But like, he's the full on like, you gotta love that oh guy. no, it's going to be great. I'm not going to eat dinner tonight. I'm going to yeah. lose a couple pounds. Hey, you know what, eh? Boom, it's going to be great. I'm going to kill him in the climate. It's, it's time for some negative calorie soup, eh? <laughs> yeah. You know what negative calorie soup is? It's uh, celery. Celery. Got some celery. Got some really overcooked carrots. Chicken broth. Lots of salt. Yeah. Yeah. Negative calorie soup. One time we were at uh, Gila, <laughs> and he was he decided to race Gila for no good reason, and uh, so he was like, "We're on Optum." He was, I guess he knew he was going to be a director, but he was just coming and hanging out, and decided he'd race Gila with us. Uh-huh. I come into the hotel room, and he's eating spinach out of the big Tupperware bin yeah. that you sell in the store. Yeah. And he's just eating it raw by hand. hand. Yeah. I was like, hey man, do you want me to get you a bowl? Like, I got bowls. <laughs> and he's like, nah, I'm just trying to choke this down. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you can choke it down with the, with the bowl. Like a fork, a fork and a bowl. <laughs> like, you know, and he just sat there begrudgingly eating a bag of spinach. <laughs> a box of spinach. A box of spinach. Like, mm. God, I love that guy. The Canadian colloquialisms that come out of his mouth are just endless entertainment. No retard sandwiches. <laughs> just not be eating retard sandwiches up there. We don't allow faggots in Canada. That was another one that came out. Of dude, he right says there. the craziest shit. I know. You're like, I don't know. That's not really an insult to me, dude. Like, Goldberg, <laughs> like, I don't know. We don't mind gay people in the States. It's not really a thing here. <laughs> hey, Pierce, are those long pants or short shorts you're wearing? Long shorts or short pants? I can't tell what you're wearing there, eh? He used to say shit like that to me all the time. I love that guy. Yeah, he's hilarious. But, I mean, he's one of those guys who... Arsman, you're Susan on Shackley. Remember her? Susan Haberhorn, so, now no. to Hoytenberg. Oh, yeah. She's married to Sven. She's a good friend of mine. She lives, They live in uh, Dusseldorf. And she used to tell me, like, every time Wolverine gets on the table, every time his legs are totally obliterated. Yeah. And if you remember, the only time Wolverine would really, he would really smash people after he'd, like, break a wrist or a collarbone. Yeah. He'd, have, he'd be forced to take three weeks off. And then he'd come back. He'd ride the trainer for a week. And he'd just be like just annihilating the field, like napalming people left, right, and center, and then he'd start training again, and then he'd be fatigued. Just chronically fucked, I think. The guy's a legend. Yeah. When did, when did you decide to quit coaching? When were you like, okay, I can't? I, I made it at USCC about a year and a half. Yeah. And I decided to quit based on, it was several factors that led to the decision, just like anything in your life that day. Sure. But, you know, one of them was sort of the realization of the travel versus the lifestyle thing, and it was like I was coping with that, that was, that was adding weight to it. But the, the, one of the big ones was also that I, um, I was really getting my head around sort of, you know, when you go there, there's all this hope and, and dreaming of this new program and you have control of this new idea and we're going to make track cycling something and, and take the program new directions. And then you have the reality check of sort of what that means. The resources you have to work with, the budget you have yeah. to work with, yeah. the people that are already in place the obstacles you have within the company and outside the company. And then you're going, okay, I'm already putting this into it. I'm already, for a year and a half, I'm like, I'm pretty tapped yeah. myself. I don't exactly have the means to hire other people. And I'm going, I can see the writing on the walls here. Like, it's possible to do it. And credit to Ben. I mean, that guy's done a fucking amazing job. Jim and Ben together have done amazing things. But I was looking at it at the time going, I don't know if I can... Yeah. Do this. Like, and part of it was 
I mean, not to, I don't want to discredit what Ben and Jim done at all. Sure. But the gender parity thing helped them because when I'm looking at it, I mean, you look at now Team Pursuit, it's like we're we're like eight years behind to yeah. come out with a Team Pursuit program that would be at least metal capable, and that's the first obstacle that most people don't see is based on the fact that all the major players in Team Pursuit have national teams which are directly connected to and funded to trade teams, mm -hmm. right? Sky, yeah, Katusha. There's some form of partnership there. There's a partnership there. So right now, if if uh, Ben were to go to JB and say, you know, I need Zabriskie and Vanderbilt, you know, hypothetical universe, sure. to do Team Pursuit, go to JB and say that, he'd be like, well, why the fuck would I let you take these guys for you know three three week camps, two World Cups, yeah. and a pre Worlds camp, that's a total of what nine ten weeks out of the season that I'm paying them for, yeah. and they're getting results that are iffy at best. You know what I'm saying is it's going to take three or four years of them to do that, but before they're going to get to the level where they're going to be riding sub four minute four Ks, mm -hmm. which is a fuck ton of work. I mean, that's that takes a lot. I mean, you can ride, you can send a team right now that's riding four or four, and they'll be sixth place. Yeah. Like, it's incredibly competitive is my point, and it's immensely resource intensive. I mean, Steve's right on that point. So, it's like you look at it that way and you go, and then GB's like, well, why would I release my riders to do this? I'm paying them year round. Yeah. I'm not paying them to be a team pursuer. I'm paying Zabriskie to go win time trials at the Dauphine or whatever, or the you know, Tour of Colorado. I'm not paying him to do that and shit. And the so. riders too, because like to keep the riders' attention for right. that long, for the right. where they stay like, man, I don't want to ride track anymore. I want to, I have this power where I know I could win the, the Dufin yeah. Prologue. Yeah. Why not go do so, that? But if, the, but if the riders are on Sky and they have a developed national team program that says, we're going to win Team Pursuit, you're on this channel, Yeah. then they know it's a realistic possibility and it can happen. So the riders, and they're getting paid either way. Yeah. So they, they are employed by Sky and they determine what the best course of action is for them. And it's a totally different model that we can't even come close to right now. So that right there is like the biggest yeah. rock in the room. And then once you overcome that, there's 70 other details that are hard. Yeah. But anyway, so it's like, but so so what Ben did, I mean, they focused on the women's program. They've got Sarah as a starter. And Jim and I literally had this conversation like three years ago. I was like, dude, you have to start Team Pursuit. We have Taylor. We have the world champion. you got a quarter of a world champion winning team right in the room right now. You got to base it around him, and for a while there was a little ignition, and then it then it fizzled. It did go for a while. They had some juniors who were going pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember that. I just think it would be hard to keep Taylor's attention. It's, I mean, Taylor's like any road guy. It's the same problem, you know. Why is he gonna? He's got to. He's got to blend. It's a. It becomes a personal choice for him. Like, do I want to risk pissing off Jim and the guys at BMC? You know, my manager at BMC mm. to potentially mix this track stuff and how do I fit in on my road program? I mean, Taylor's looking at, he's doing grand tours now. Can he really afford to run around all winter chasing track world cups and shit? No, probably not. No. So it's, you know, it's a balancing act. So that's a complex measure. So, you know, that was one big, that whole sort of thought process and learning about what it would really take to build the track program and make it something real. But the other factor is that and, and some of that comes down to U.S. resources. I mean, we have 25 dollars in this country, but they're all an airplane, an airport apart. Yeah. And you got one good rider at every single track, maybe two. You got one good sprinter and one good endurance rider. If you could get all those riders in the same place at the same time, you'd have something to talk about. But yeah, when the fuck is that going to happen? That doesn't even happen at nationals. You get half of them at nationals at the most. 
at the most. Dude, Bobby Lee won the national pursuit this year with like a 4.30 or something. 30, which is not an unreasonable time in LA. You know, it's, it's a little slowest track, but... It's not what you would nationals. Well, not in Australia. <laughs> you got fucking five dudes doing under 4.20. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, and that's because they all have these velodromes that are super close and they hop on a 30-minute commuter flight and they've all got wood indoor 250s. Yeah. So when you grow up riding that... That, that's a track culture that we don't have in the U.S. And that is a huge obstacle for someone like Ben who's building a program. I mean, that's why he has to spend his life on the road. Or, you know, he lives in Springs, so he's got this track in his backyard. But, you know, and this track is better than nothing. It's a great facility, considering I was born in 84. It's right. an amazing track. It's in amazing shape, but it's still an outdoor velodrome in Colorado Springs. You can't use it all winter, mostly. So what did you do after you after you backed it up a little bit? I went back to, well, so I, I coached at USCC for a year and a half, then went back to racing, um, kind of did my own thing for a while, started chasing UCI points, was thinking about Beijing for sure. Went to... That's right, I remember running into you guys at Mount Hood. What year was that? Yeah. I was driving yeah. the caravan. Yeah. <laughs> were you really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't know you were doing yeah. that. Oh. What year yeah. was that? Was uh, that was 07. That was 07. Yeah. And oh I, shit! This means I was going really else. bad there. This means you back to something else. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we were working together at when. So I decided to try to do the points race for a little bit. Yep. And uh, Manchester. Manchester, right? Yeah. I almost got a medal in Manchester. You got ass fucked. That yeah. was one of those points races that just went ass over teacup at the though, last minute. About the Manchester one is that I was like, oh wow, I'm gonna get a medal at a World Cup. Like I was really pumped. Cause. You and I had talked, like, there's these two major variables with the points race at a World Cup level. You have to have the legs, and then you have to have the luck, right? And for 99% of that race, I had both. Mm -hmm. Like, I had felt really good, and every time I followed a move, it left. Mm -hmm. Like, I got extremely lucky. Didn't you lap field twice? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. It was ridiculous. I have it on video. I've watched it. Every time I've... I, every time I've made an effort, it paid off. It worked out. You were, yeah. it's just, and that's points racing. There are days where you just, you seem to always be in the right place. Right. And there are other days where you're in all these moves yeah. and they go nowhere. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> I was like, oh my God, this is one of those days that's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. And then some shit happened where Dude, it was like lapped on the last half lap. It was, it was seriously like a group got off with like after the lap, the 10 to go sprint. And the field just didn't react. Nobody was in the right place. None of the players were there to do anything. Yeah. And the first place guy had it locked up, so he didn't he didn't mm -hmm. have to go. Yeah. And you were in bronze, and four guys lapped with like yeah, it was like two and a half laps to go yeah, or yeah. something. And so all of a sudden, like, you got schooled on the point. You went yeah. from third to seventh or eighth or something. Yeah. I remember being like <sighs> really like depressed. Like I was watching. And I, was I just remember like, calling like calling home and being saying, yeah. don't think it's gonna get any better than that." <laughs> Like that's I pretty much had all the luck <laughs> in the world till last lap. Uh -huh. But I uh, felt really bad for you. Ah, uh, but and I didn't express how bad I felt at that time because I remember you walking up to me and going, "Dude, I just got fucked," and I was like, "Yeah, you did." <laughs> I, uh, I should have been like, "Oh, dude," and like giving you a hug because I. Oh no, <clears throat> it was one of those things where I mean I'd raced enough to know that like yeah that's what it is, but then uh, I just never. I had like these weird back issues and depression issues aside, so I showed up to Worlds just not fit to race a bike. I shouldn't have even gone, but whatever, so I totally suck. And we had this weird interaction. Do you remember this? 
at the dinner table one night. Like Huff got a medal at the world. I remember, I, this. I, I remember this and I was Yeah, and I, I still want to, I want to, because I was in such a weird place mentally that I don't even remember 100%. And Amy like, was there. Yeah, that's how fucked mentally I was. Where like, I remember I tried to make a joke and it didn't yeah. play. Yeah. Do you, I remember this graphically. So here's the backstory on this. It wasn't okay. a joke. Here's the backstory. I well, tr- he like, tried. I legitimately, like, it came from a place of humor. I'll say that. Like, it came yeah. from a humor. No, and I knew that. I knew that. Um, it just failed miserably. It just failed. But it, but it was one of those. So here was the situation is I had a lot going on at Bordeaux that week. I, I was in, my head was all over the place. Mallorca. Or Bordeaux, no, Bordeaux was Bordeaux. Bordeaux was you. Yeah, this is where Brad won the bronze. Was my, was Bordeaux? We'll disagree, but okay. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're right. It was Mallorca. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. You're right. It was Mallorca. Yeah. Uh, it was Mallorca. Yes. So, they, that was the f- first year of the ma- of the Omnium. Yep. And it was a short format Omnium. Yep. And everybody's talking about this new event Omnium, and there were rumors that it was going to be at the Olympics, and you know, sure. blah blah blah. But they announced it, and they they announced the format. It's a flying two hundred, not a flying two fifty. And it was a, it finished with kilo, but all the events were abbreviated. They were all one day, yep. right? And I saw it, and I immediately said to Brad, I like called him or talked to him when we saw it. And I said, "Dude, you could win a medal in this event at Worlds for sure. This is made for you, Brad. Like, mm-hmm. this is a great event for you because Brad is that guy. He's an endurance guy, but he's got tons of speed. I mean, he's 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 like borderline competitive as a sprinter, kind of a Jamie Carney sort of dude. I mean, sure. so he's got really good kilo times. He's got good. And I said, "Dude, this is a great event for you. I'd love to see you do well at this." And, you know, you do this mental calculations on it, and you go, I'm thinking to myself, I could never do well in this event. There's no way. Like, even on my best day, I just get killed in the 200. And it was really interesting to watch the Omnium develop for the first couple of years because countries couldn't decide if they should put sprinters into it or, or endurance riders. Yep. Because it had a flying 200, a kilo, but also had a, four, a 3K pursuit, which is, like, just long enough to where some sprinters can yeah, it's a weird fake event. it. Yeah. And then it was a really short scratch race. I think it was like, I think it was 10K. It was like racing locally. It was yeah. a local night series. Yeah. Race, yeah. But it was all, but it was five events yeah. all stacked. Or, and then it was a missing out or was it six? No, they didn't have the elimination yet. It was points, scratch, pursuit. It was three timed events and two mass start. Yep. Yeah. It was only five events in one day though. So by the time I got to the Kilo, you were just fucked. Yeah. And Brad shows up to Mallorca and he doesn't even have that great a form yeah. and I'm like dude just stick with it it's all based on the timed events and he rode he literally rode the two mass start events about as poorly as he could have yeah. he fucked him he, the scratch race he let out full gas from like three laps out Typical what are you out, doing yeah. huff sabotage huffetage yeah. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking because he's an experienced bike racer he just took no, a brain, I, I, I talked to him tossed about it in the trash you know just yeah I've talked to him about <laughs> it on the podcast yeah. it was like when you have an amazing amount of like Huff, whenever he has any kind of expectation on him, he just will commit sabotage. Huffetage. Yeah. <laughs> Love that guy. But so he went out, he got the medal. He got the medal, he gets the bronze. So we're yeah. sitting at dinner later on and and you busted out. All of a sudden you're just out of what the What was the like, joke? It was, oh, I know who's burning up on the inside about that endurance medal. Really? Was it that bad? I felt like it was something. I felt like Pat said, "Oh, this is our first medal." He session. was toasting. He was literally toasting Brad. He got like champagne. He was like, "This is our medal. This is like our first medal since the dawn of time, other than Sarah or something like that." Sure, sure. You know, first men's medal in nine million years. And sure. 
and we're all like, yay, and you're like, well, I know who's burning up about this, and you look at me, and I'm like, really? Oh, Dude, he called home that night. Really? Yeah. I did. I was, yeah. I was pretty like, bummed out about it. I guess I need to quit my job because... <laughs> oh. <laughs> and that was the because thing. Mike can see it. But, but I... I but that was the thing. No, that's not what I said. It wasn't because Mike could see it. Mm-mm. It's because you thought it. Mm-hmm. Like, I really didn't. I was genuinely happy for Brad. Right. I really right. was. And as I, was I, as I said. I talking about myself. I mean, I, I got a dead last in the qualifier. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, Colby feels this way, too. <laughs> I'm not the only one who feels like a piece of shit. No. Wikipedia. Projection. <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I just. I, I knew from the beginning that I had less than zero probability of ever meddling in an Omnium. So to me, it was not... Yeah. It was like watching a, an American guy get a medal in a Kirin, except that it was a rider that I was directly coaching because I was the endurance coach. So I was happy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was genuinely happy for yeah. Brad. And I also felt like he went there riding kind of like shit. Not, he wasn't riding like shit, but he definitely was like, I don't feel good, I feel awful. You know, he wasn't sure. like, when you have good legs, you're like, let's do this. Yeah. Brad was like, oh my God, I'm dying. And he still got a bronze. Yep. So, so from my perspective, there was total hope for the future because I'm going, dude, if we nail this next year, you could win this fucking thing. Yeah. And so I was psyched. And then you broke that out. And to me, it was just, I really felt bad for Brad because there was so much talk and drama about how I had like transitioned to the job and was still like riding competitively internationally because I had gotten that silver at Moscow and stuff. Yeah. Maybe that was just my own little internal dialogue about it. Yeah. But I felt like, but I had riders coming up to me like, "You're coaching now?" Like this Greek, this dude from Greece, this Ionis dude. Ionis. He that fell on the Tim floor Wolf. laughing when I told him I was a coaching. He couldn't. He was like, "Ionis is a why? Why?" He was like, "What the fuck?" For like ten minutes, he was sitting there going, "I can't believe it." Now, one guy's opinion, whatever. Yeah. But it illustrated to me the point that like, I was like, mm-hmm. you know. Did I do this too did early? Did I do this too early kind yeah. of thing? Like, why Why did I do this? I could have done this later. I can't go back to being an athlete now. And that that played into my thought process to a degree. Yeah. But honestly, but for, but at that moment, it wasn't about that. It was about taking the moment away from Brad. Yeah, I felt yeah, like I yeah. was trying to genuinely be nice to Brad and give him a toast, which he deserved. Totally. And then you put the intention on me, and I was like, no, 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 don't yeah. fucking make it about me. I just was, like, really crushed with that. So anyway. No yeah, no. I I've always like I was in a I was in a Huff and I had talked about this a little bit on the yeah. podcast. It'll come out next week, but like just I was in a crazy fucking place there. Like I was drinking so much, <laughs> so it was like I, I was thinking about like what we would like all my Colby interactions, and I was like. <laughs> I vaguely remember really pissing him off. I vaguely remember. I remember there was this incident, and I remember trying to apologize, and he was too pissed to hear my apology. And I remember thinking, that's okay. Like, like, you know, when you try to apologize to somebody and they don't want to hear it, and you're like, no, 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 but listen. And they're like, no. And you're like, you said, I said, hey, man, I'm sorry. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm really mad. I remember thinking like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> like, I was going to try to talk you out of being mad. I was like, you know what? Fair enough. Uh, I, I, maybe we could talk about this six years later on the podcast. <laughs> maybe we well, settle stuff after six Cheers years. to podcast. Cheers to podcast. <laughs> yeah. So now, for all those moments, for all those who don't know, you're running probably one of the most comprehensive bike fits in the nation. I've been to a lot of bike fitters, and you've seen all my weird body back issues. Yeah. Um, 
I saw you at the end, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, whereas maybe if this technology existed before, we could have right. done it, but shoulda, coulda, woulda. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What is this? So you went to Australia for a month. Mm -hmm. Almost a month to train with Steve Hogg. Yeah. Who is uh, Aussie bike fitter. He's been fitting for almost 30 years now. And the guy is just, he's just a fucking genius. I mean, he's, he's incredibly smart. He's, but his biggest attribute is that he is a critical thinker. I mean, he just, every time you postulate something to him, he, he will, he has the ability to take his own sort of ego out of it and just look at it objectively and tear it apart yeah. or not accordingly. Yeah. And, and he's not attached to the outcome. And that's, that's that given the, the, depo the supposition that you throw in some gruff Aussie, Aussie manner in there. That's Steve, <laughs> you know, like, oh, fuck, right? What are you talking about? Like he just, he, and, and he doesn't sleep. The yeah. man does not sleep. He's been in insomnia for like 10 years. So when the rest of the world sleeps, Steve is researching, researching yeah. and connecting dots that the rest of us never see. So that has had huge benefit to his professional career because he's, he's able to read, read and research and study and learn and, and adopt these philosophies from, um, way outside the, the box of bike fitting, conventional bike fitting. Yeah. So you like, I went to see you do the bike fit and you had even just a simple one where you close your eyes and you march in place. Mm -hmm. Like that's never, I've, called, be, I've maybe been bike fit in, in a 15, yeah, <laughs> in a 15 year career I've been doing, I've maybe gotten 30 bike fits, right? Yeah. yeah. That's never been fucking brought up, man. <laughs> like it was, it was an intensive, That's it was a really good bike fit. Like, I feel like if my body cooperated, like you're not a, you're not a body fixer. You can't, you can't unfuck the fuck. Right. You can't unfuck a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken's fucked. You're not going to fix it. Fucked. Chickens are fucked. But uh, what made you think like, okay, I'm going to go Australia. This is worth the one month so, investment. So. Uh, well, I, you know, I had been coaching. I mean, the coaching thing really took off. I had done some coaching and dabbled here and there before USCC, and then that sort of kickstarted my coaching career, thanks to Pat. And Pat's really the one who saw in me the ability and sort of saw that I would be a good coach and mentor, clearly, and sort of sparked that. So I owe him a, a thanks for that. But, um, you know, coaching took off after that. But then it was just, I don't know, I, I guess it comes from the philosophy of sort of wanting to see the athlete holistically. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, as a coach, I was never just coaching. I was also giving diet advice, giving, you know, to a degree, social and relationship advice within certain boundaries yeah. to giving advice on how to sleep well to, you know, stretching routines, gym routines. Yeah. Like you can't just look at an athlete and only see their cycling. Like, I mean, of course you can, but you're not, you're only going to get so yeah, deep but you and so were, far with that. Yeah. You weren't like a meathead rider. You know, well, like, so I think so that translated that you weren't a yeah. head coach of like, oh, well, just go fast, go pedal yeah. hard or whatever, right? Yeah. So, yeah, do Russian step. Russian yeah, step. step. I mean, and that that analytical mindset is what got me in trouble at times, racing for sure. Yeah. And then you you sort of overcome that and learn to temper your own mentality, and you know, as yeah. JV used to say to Friedman, Friedman, turn it off, you know, turn yeah. it off, quit thinking so much, just fucking pedal your bike. So that the only. Uh, Objection I have to that. The only thing that like ruined me like with that was that like the the imp 
implication that Friedman was a smart guy. <laughs> Friedman, turn off your brain. And they're like, well, just because the brain's running hot does not mean it's doing any kind of critical Good. thinking. Well, that's probably exactly the point that Jonathan was making. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I don't know where you're at mentally, but turn that Whatever you're off. doing, just stop. Pedal. <laughs> Because Freeman's a strong dude, man. If he... No, he's crazy strong, but all the time you're like, well, Freeman just, Freeman just turned his brain off. So it's like, well, okay, but minute. can we add... How many algebraic equations is he solving right exactly. now? He's not doing any self-introspection and realization. He's not like... <laughs> he's not... Yeah. He's thinking about how to prank his roommate by putting a cockroach in his pillowcase or something. That's... Yeah, he's thinking like how great it would be. To, like, here's my Friedman impression. Um, motorbikes, motorbikes, uh, pizza, motorbikes. <laughs> we love you, Mike. We do. Uh, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> At times. At times. So, Friedman's doing the three day in LA, by the way. I just talked to him the other day. Um, with, uh, who's that sprinter dude? Hanson. Hanson. He's doing it with Hanson. Really? I think so. Mm-hmm. Can that guy ride a track bike at all? We'll he has out. ridden it. Can you do it, Madison? Has he ever taken one hand off the bars and done a change in so. over 20 miles an hour? I think so. All right. This is the funny thing to me with track riders, though. Like, when you get to this point, like, how snobby they get. They're just like this. It's very, like, an elitist. Wait it's till a- Holloway and I have the race meeting in L.A. and tell everybody how to race their bikes. Oh, Jesus. Holloway will be just jizzing yeah, but- all over the place. Just okay. one chance to feel superior. I guess we did. We learned a shit ton. You do. You do learn a lot. And we but went to Burnaby, and we literally told the field what was going to happen, and it worked out. I went to the. Uh, that was Burnaby. Is that Manchester Revolution? Yeah, and I went and did that once. I did that once too. Freeman and I did it. I went and did it completely on my own. You just showed up. I just had this guy like put in a word for me, and I showed up, and like there was these. How'd it go? Horrible. Horrible? Dude, they had like a, a three-man Madison. Yeah, oh, those are disasters. I I was just used to the regular Madison, yeah. so I completely missed one of my guys one time. There's <laughs> <laughs> a three-man Madison missing out. Oh, oh, oh God. Yeah. That sounds like a revolution creation. I was a little doubt. We showed up one year, and like everybody and their mom was there, like Newton and Cav and Hales and Baggie, Maggie Bagstead and... Yeah. Freeman and I showed up. I actually won the points race, which was fucking sweet, especially because we showed up like the day before. Sure. And then Freeman's bike didn't show up till that morning. Or no, his bike showed up and his clothes didn't. So he did a three-hour road ride in sweatpants. Of course. I still have. I know, vintage. And um, so we show up and do the race, and then but then they had like a, I think it was a flying kilo, team time trial. Yep. Changes. Yep. But we were the first team, and we're trying to get information on exactly what the format is and how it works and whether you can do a change here or there or whatever. And, of course, why the fuck would they tell the Americans that? So we botched the thing to all shit. And then it was six teams, and, like, four of them were guys' teams, and two of them were, like, junior women's team. But they gave them, like, a 10-second handicap, and I think we got last (laughs) by the junior women's team because we, like, missed a change or something, you know? It's just... And just like hanging your head low, like, oh. like I won the points race, and then we get last, and this like we're getting beat by these fifteen-year-old girls. It was awesome. They're really good women, though. Like, <laughs> one of them was a Victoria Penalty. Probably. So. Yeah, right. Probably. So, so anyway, you, where were we? So, you, uh, Steve Hogg, you went down okay. Australia. Yep, went there for almost a month. Um, I mean, part of the, as I say, part of the cool part of the experience was 
you know, as a bike racer, how many freaking continents have you raced on and been to and sure. you don't know shit about the place you went to? Yep. I got to actually live. I rented an apartment in Sydney, took my bike. That was my mode of transportation. Rode to and from the shop every day. It was like a 30-minute ride each way. Mm-hmm. Shopped at the grocery stores, bought kangaroo, cooked it myself multiple times. It's delicious. And high What iron. are you thinking when he says, like, I want to go get bike fit by this My guy. wife was nothing but supportive of me because she knew, looking at the athlete holistically, I mean, she that's the way we think together. And as soon as I brought up the idea of going to train with Steve and we had a couple email interactions, I showed him to her and she said, her intuition was immediately like, you should do this. I think this is the right step for you. Mm. I totally support this. I think it's going to be a good thing. I think Steve's a smart guy. You're going to learn a ton and it's going to be a good fit for you. And from my perspective, it was kind of like, I, I think that my, the way my personality works, I'm good if I have a few things going, not just one thing that I'm like endlessly focused on. Sure. Like that. Yeah. Like I mean, granted, it's all bike racing, but <laughs> I can coach and I can fit and it, I can serve my clients both ways using those modalities and allows me to work with the athletes on multiple levels, but also the fitting in and of itself was so interesting to me. I mean, bike fitting is so complex and so there's so many, it's like playing chess every afternoon is what it is. It's like a six hour chess game, but every game's, every game's different. Every game requires intense concentration. And you come away from it going, wow, I'm exhausted, but that was awesome. And I learned this, this, and this. Every athlete is different. Yeah. And that's what's cool about it, you know, yeah. which is similar to coaching. Yeah. I mean, every athlete's different. Every athlete responds differently to training load and has their own little. So Steve is, Steve, his, his fits are a little bit unique in the sense that he really focuses on a result. And they're a bit unique in that he has a money back guarantee. Like, if you don't like the work he does and you come back and you can't th- get things resolved, it's a gentleman's agreement that he'll give you your money back. Yeah. And you know, in the whatever, however many years he's been doing that since he offered that fit, that money back guarantee, he's had a few people who've kind of fucked him on it who've just said they, were dis- they weren't satisfied just because they wanted to have a free bid basically. But sure. you take that as a percentage of whatever. And, but the vast majority of people you know, hold up to that agreement. And, and he's had to get some refunds from time to time and sometimes he thinks it's he just wasn't able to solve the problem. Sometimes it's that, you know, the client was maybe being a bit difficult or whatever, or had unrealistic expectations about the fit. Mm. But either way, the percentages are very, very small. And and it sort of brings, I think, one major issue with bike fitting is that, I mean, okay, if you took your broken car to a mechanic and paid 500 bucks for it, and then two weeks later, the same symptoms came back, you'd be like, what the fuck? And you'd go back in there and say, dude, you said you fixed this, this, and this, and the light's still on, and the engine doesn't start, or whatever, you know? But people pay 500 bucks for a bike fit all the time. Yeah. And two weeks later, they change it all back to the way it was. Or they go, oh, that guy sucked, or, you know, this kind of worked, but the rest of it was crap. I hear that story all the time, and I don't know why the bike fitting industry is held to such a low standard that consumers think that's okay. Because you wouldn't do that. I mean, this is within... They consider it a bad haircut. Well, an expensive bad haircut. An expen- a really expensive bad haircut, but that consumers shouldn't look at it that way, in my opinion. Like, why Maybe would it's because you... like it's with the car, like you don't know how to fix a car. You're like, okay, this car. Nope. But if you knew how to fix your own bike fit, you would do it. Yeah, but well, with the bike fit, it's like, well, this is my body. I feel this, even if it's an uneducated feeling. Like you're educated in it, but they're just going well, off of past like really like bad repetitions right. or whatever. Those like, one time I lowered my saddle and it felt like this. 
yeah. or I got this back pain or whatever. Yeah. So, well, that I find that as a fitter, one of the most interesting aspects of it is that I'm I spend a lot of time educating my clients about, you know, the lever lengths that we use in cycling and how they work, yeah. how we apply force to the pedals, you know, what muscles are actually active during the pedal stroke. Um, what levers we use and why they're important, why arch support is important, why proper arch support is essential to yeah, no, having I mean, leverage I, on the pedal. You know? I remember when you were setting up my cleats and like how exact you were and how long it took and you would you had the whole system of, well this is how far in front or behind the spindle you should be. Right. Like it's essential. I mean, well, think about it this way, like there there are, people don't think of it this way. For some reason they assume that the lever length in cycling, they're really most most cyclists who know what they're doing. Right, there's a broad line. There are the freedmen's in the world who you could literally put them on a tricycle and line them up for a road race, and you'd probably sure. do just about as well. Yeah, wouldn't even notice. And then there's the the princess side, which I'm definitely on, yeah. questionably. Um, Captain Duct Tape right here, and friendly plastic. Friendly plastic, and you put me on the other side, and you move me one mil, and I flip shit. So now, assuming you're on that side of the line, it's like people are super anal. Most bike racers, even in general, are super anal about their saddle height. But they're remarkably unanal about their cleat floor aft position. But you're affecting the length of the lever on the crank arm with both of those variables. Yeah. So, but people just don't understand cleat floor. I feel like aft. everybody's listening to this podcast and look at their cleats all the time. <laughs> oh shit! I hope so. Give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like they just either slam them all the way back or all the way forward, or they put them in the middle because they don't know what the fuck to do. Right. And then they go, "Oh, my knee hurt," and they just fuck with them a little bit here and there until their knee doesn't hurt anymore. That's not. Yeah. Right. I mean, you may have found an acceptable cleat position by blind luck. That's possible. And look, if you've been riding for years without pain or discomfort, then you're probably in a relatively good place. There is a law of sort of necessity at the top end of the sport. Something's got to be working. But if you dig, you dig enough, you find almost everybody has these chronic issues. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, the bottom line is the human body is asymmetrical, and we're all in love with a symmetrical beast. The whip is, you know, they're made, they're aligned. We can't all build a bike like Pat was talking about tonight where that guy intentionally built his bike with a left turn offset. <laughs> so we race the track and get done with the points race and be like, oh god, my back hurts. Yeah. No, it doesn't work so well. <laughs> so oh. so you did the hour record, you've come full circle. Two hour well, records. Two hour records within a week. So okay, I never even got to explain that. Because I we've talked about how everybody doesn't geek out on UCI rule books. So here's the deal. To, to, if anybody makes it this late in this podcast, I don't even know. Let's <laughs> <clears throat> do it on your long ride, please, uh, if you want to. But there's so there used to just be the hour record, and then they started enforcing UCI rules on Tantra bikes. Yeah. And those applied to the hour record. Now, when I set the hour record in '95, none of that shit applied. So I was like zero centimeters over the BB, riding a Lotus, arms in the Floyd praying mantis position, any helmet, any this, any that. Then Norm said it in '97, he was riding a super bike with Superman position, 24-inch front wheel, narrow bottom bracket, blah, blah, blah. Then fast forward to UCI rule time. Double triangle. Double triangle, etc. right? And then they have some limits on helmets and stuff and some limits on, and has to be same size wheels and etc. And no Superman. And you got saddle limitations. And sure. So now, then they, they separated. Then Bourbon rides 56.375. That's the... <laughs> That's the best performance, is what the UCI calls it. Yeah. Right? And then they outlaw all that shit. So they basically make that unattainable for at least 10 years until people catch up. Or as um, as the Sky Guy said, uh, Brailsford, 
today's clean athletes will eventually outperform yesterday's dopers. Mm. I'm not saying Borman doped. I have no idea if Borman doped. Sure. But I got to be honest, 56K an hour is fucking unbelievable. So I hope he did it clean. I'd like to believe he did. He's been a hero of mine my whole career. Yeah. But holy shit balls, that's fast. I mean, yeah. that's try, go try riding 56K an hour for like 1K sometime on the track. Anybody who's listening, good luck. Anyway, 1K, let alone an hour. Um, so they do away with all that. They move on and they separate them and they decide. I think they're inspired. The UCI is who I mean by they. They decide that they don't want the hour to be dominated by all this aerodynamic bullshit, which I kind of disagree with because, as I was saying, cycling is a sport that's unique. It's a combination of the equipment and the athlete. It's not a marathon race, and we don't want it to be. That's what makes cycling unique. It's not a Formula One race, which is all the equipment and very little the driver. Yeah. I'm not saying Formula One drivers have no skill, but the majority of what they do is based on their equipment. You can't argue that. Yeah. Marathon running is the other way around. Cycling's in the middle. There are very few other sports that are like that. I mean, well, think it's the same it. with like F1. People like yeah. it's an arms race to some extent. It's an that's, arms, that's right. what makes it great. That's what makes it cool. And man, when Borman won the Olympics in um, what Barcelona. year was it? in Barcelona on that on the Lotus? I mean, people were flipping shit over that bike. It was amazing. Yeah. And it you know got people talking. And same thing. So and then when Aubrey makes a bike out of a washing machine and comes up with this mm -hmm. new position, you know, yeah, how right. cool is that? And I get it. The UCI like they don't want the sport to get too weird. Right, but they definitely had a streak where they were picking on Aubrey, poor guy. Yeah. But <clears throat> anyway, so let me just see as a segue. Aubrey is fucking amazing because the first time he tried the hour and didn't make it, he got up the next morning and did it again and said it. Yeah. Do you know how fucked I was last <laughs> Tuesday morning? I mean, it took me all week to barely be able to pedal my bike one hour tonight. I almost didn't finish. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that guy's unbelievable. So. Anyway, but so then they made what they call the athlete's record, which is basically a retro record. So you can look up the rules on the UCI site, but the fundamentals of it are it's got to be a round tubed bike, it's got to be at least 16 spokes per wheel, it can't be deep rims, the rims can be 22 mils maximum. So I had to literally eBay some Wolber Aspen Profil 20s, yeah, which are cool rims, yeah, Wolber Profil 20s, fucking cool rims. Um, and it has to be like kind of a, a traditional helmet, not an aero helmet. And the bars have to be of traditional design, but they can be pretty narrow, 34 centimeters, which nobody sells. So I had to cobble together this bike to do this. So that's what that's what that's more or less what Merckx rode on, and that's what Boardman then rode on when they announced these rules. He said, "Well, I've got to do this one too," and he did it. He rode 49.4k, and then that guy Andrzej Sosenka said it. He rode 49.8 in Moscow a few years later, and since then he got. Lifetime ban for doping. Good Oops. job, Andre. Oops. Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, then, so I decide I'm going to do these records. I wanted to, from the beginning of time, since Norm set my rec broke my record, I set it at 95. He set it at 97. He went significantly farther. So this is full arrow. I went 50.191k. Norm went 51.505. I mean, I went fast. Like that was almost 31 miles an hour. He went fucking really fast, like 32 miles an hour. That's, yeah. Like, but he did it with the Superman position. He did it with Superman. I tested the Superman in 97. For me, I didn't find it any faster in the Springs. Mm. Maybe that was just me. I don't know. Yeah. I tested it with an SRM and whatnot. But So I tried in 97. Was ahead at 10K. Was down at 20K. Threw in the towel. Didn't finish. Um, didn't really have great form that year anyway. But I always in the back of my head, I've been like, someday I want to try this again. So the whole idea behind this year was Boulder Valley Velodrome is going to open. 
It's yeah. going to be 40 minutes from my door by bike. Yeah. I'm going to train. It's going to open in May, maybe June, maybe July at the latest. I'm going to yeah. train on it all summer. I'm going to train there, train there, train there, have a velodrome within riding distance of my house for the first time in my life. I'm going to get super fast, and I'm going to do the hour record. Yeah, I'm going to teach there and coach there. It's going to be awesome. And then in September, I'll do the hour record because that's when the weather's consistent in Colorado. And then we had insane snowstorms in April, like five weeks of a foot plus. That set the velodrome construction way back. They were about six weeks back at that point. Then it set them another six weeks back. Then we got the storm in August, which blew down the velodrome part that wasn't completed. It would have been fine probably, but because it, the structure wasn't finished, there was a hole in the turn and it blew it over. And so that set it back to probably earliest now, I'd say is January 2014. They're going to finish it. Eventually it's going to be awesome. But meanwhile, I've been training all summer for this yeah. and I'm starting to go really good. And you know, September I'm like setting regular, I'm setting power records for myself like for since I've been on PowerTap, which is four years of data, yeah. I'm like I've got everything as good as you've been from five minutes up to two hours is yeah. new in the last two months. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting really fast and I'm feeling incredibly strong and doing shit I've never honestly never done before. And it was a great exercise for me as a coach to like really critically think like how can I do this? How can I get? Because I'm thinking like optimistically, you know, I'm thinking like Norm went a K. 1.4 K further than I did 1.3 like if I'm gonna beat that that's gonna be everything that I've gotten in 20 years yeah I mean everything so I went to Alan Lim he says you got to do 335 for an hour all things being the same bike conditions weather that's a lot of variables but I'm like so that's what I'm training on I'm trying to get 335 for as much time as I can so I'm doing these intervals of five and ten minute intervals at 335 and I'm getting a good number of power good number of minutes there you know procession or whatever and anyway, so then September comes and I'm like, fuck it, I just, I gotta go for it anyway and do it in the springs. So I went for it. And so last week I did the arrow record. Wait, wait, wait. And in the meantime, there was oh, the thousand right. year flood. Right. Yeah. Forgot about that. <laughs> things a week were, before. Right. Things were two going weeks before, great. Yeah. Things were going really well. I went to Steamboat. I won Steamboat. That was awesome. Did this amazing breakaway with my teammate, Kenneth Peterson, and we smashed our bay in the road race. It was super fun. And, and I was like, I feel great. And I do a couple more rides after I recover from that. I'm feeling good. And then, yeah, we get the thousand-year flood. Yeah. So that's our basement floods. We don't have it nearly as bad as a lot of people, but it's enough to completely fuck my training for at least a week. Yeah. I don't ride for a week. Yeah. And then, yeah, I'm ripping out the floor, and we have asbestos in our basement and mold and the whole bit, and we're dealing yeah. with FEMA and insurance and all this. And then I'm like, and for about a week, I'm just trying to get my head wrapped around. I'm like, can I still maybe do this? Like... I don't know, you know, and at first I'm like, there's no way, this is just too much of my plate, too much of my plate, and then the more I go, the more I'm thinking like, man, I've worked months for this, I've yeah. got to at least try, you know, like, I'm going so good, all I need to do is get a couple rides in me where I got my legs under me, so I go out one day and I do some intervals and I'm like really fresh, and then a couple days later I run into Pete Stetna, and uh, poor guy, has just been through so much lately, Yeah. He's his dad has a horrible crash and he's home for that and then his house gets flooded so he's in the same fire drill I am yeah. ripping out flooring but he's training for worlds so he's literally doing four hour rides and then going home and like demoing his basement I'm just like dude right. I feel so bad for you and he had an awesome ride at worlds yeah so fucking good for him but like so we're out going up in a car and smashing it doing these intervals and the power was there while my legs were just so heavy and I think it was like. I still hadn't recovered from three days prior. No yeah. recovery. And it was probably just the sort of ambient stress level. 
and everything. So I focus on recovery and start doing some efforts, and then there's no roads to train on. I mean, literally, there's not a canyon within 30 miles of Boulder that's open. There's one climb, a five-minute climb up NCAR. So I'm driving down to Deer Creek and doing climbs in there. And I set some Stratas and this and that, whatever, and that's fun and, and stuff. But I'm like, okay, I've got some form. Let's give it a crack. So went through the night, and I rode 49.8, which was pretty, pretty disappointing for me. I mean, I was about... The weather wasn't great. It was a little windy in the middle. Yeah. I think that maybe cost me three to 500 meters-ish. But I went slower than I did in 95. Yeah. You know? So I was like, eh. I mean, put it this way. I was losing about a second per minute to Norm's, to the pace that I needed to beat Norm's record. Yeah. So for the first, after 20, 25K, I was about 20, 25 seconds down. So that's just enough to be like, I'm one second a minute? Serious? That's after a minute of racing flat out, the guy's a second in front of you. I mean, that's fucking nothing, really, yeah. if you think about it. But over 20 minutes, it's 20 seconds, that's a lot. But the guy's just barely pulling up. A bike length. Yeah, it's a bike length. I mean, think about it, if a guy dropped you by a bike length every minute on a climb, yeah. he wouldn't drop you. Because yeah. you could keep that pace, you yeah. know? Yeah. So it's like, you'd find it, you'd dig. Somehow you'd stand up every 10 meters and catch up, is what you'd do. Or every, yeah. every 200 meters. You'd find a way. you find a way, but in a time trial, it doesn't quite work that way. So I don't know. I was like, uh, and then the wind kicked up. It didn't matter anyway, so I was significantly down at the end. So that was that. And I mean, I could potentially maybe do it again, but honestly, it's expensive. I got to pay for officials and stuff and track time. I don't know. And then I decided to do the athlete's record just to do it. So just to set it, yeah. an athlete's record is not been established for the U.S. And Mark Noblet built you a bike. Mark <laughs> Noblet built me a bike, like... Like on a, I called him up with this crazy idea. I talked to a couple of frame builders. I'm like, yeah, we got in our bike and this, and then we just got flooded. And I wanted to use someone local, so and um, so I called Mark, and he's like, oh, I think I can do it. Mark's I've known Mark forever. He's building bikes way back when I was doing team pursuit in '93 and stuff, or individual pursuit. And he's like, ah, I can do it. And the thing about Mark is he's got like these old piles of rounds tubes in his garage laying around that he can just pull. He's like, I got some stays I can use, and I got this really light top tube and. He's like, yeah, it's a really light top tube. And I'm like, well, I'm going to need a 59-centimeter top tube. He's like, you're not going to ride this thing without hands, are you? Like, no. He's like, okay, well, that's probably all right then. I'm like, sweet. <laughs> Unfortunately, the bike ended up being significantly underweight. So yeah, we, we might have noticed a clinking noise. They were stuffing chains in the down tube and top tube before the start. In the down tube even? Yeah. Like, they had to I, take the fork out and snake it through to the down tube. I don't know how you rode that thing. C-tube. Yeah. I don't know how you rode that thing for an hour. Because you just got in just rattling. It was a conk, 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 I was surprised. That's why I went up to you. Like, that's the only reason I went up to you before the start. I was like, hey, you have earplugs, right? Because the last <laughs> one you had earplugs. And right. you're like, no, it's fine. I don't have earplugs. I'm like, no, you should really have earplugs. <laughs> I don't know if you've ridden this thing full gas yet. But this fuck. <laughs> This uh, bike yeah. sounds like a mess. I rode it on the rollers. <laughs> and we used a radially spoke wheel on both sides for the rear. Because oh. this bike was a bizarre combination of what could be made at the last minute and what I had laying around. Yeah. And what Damo had in his shop for spokes. And yeah. was like, well, that's the right length, isn't it? Oh, they're 18s. We can't cross them. Shit. <laughs> so. Uh, so what's was, next? What's next? Next year? I don't know. I don't know yet. Uh, a lot of things on tap for next year. Maybe a new job opportunity. I'm not sure about that. Mm. Boulder Valley Velodrome's going to open. Um, coaching, fitting. Want to continue yeah. those? Yeah. And Still then, racing locally. Racing. Well, this year I raced with a team that I've been 
been cultivating with uh, a buddy of mine, Nick Trages, for the last couple of years. It's called uh, Horizon Organic Panache Development. Yep. And we've done really well locally the last few years. I mean, we've we smashed it, and we got some good, promising riders. And this year, Nick Nick is in the opportunity in the position to sort of take some time off from work right now and focus on the team. So he's really hitting the boards, looking for sponsors, and and trying to take it to the next level and get guys enough funding to get. We sent some guys to NRC races this year if he wants to be able to send them a little more support, sure. get team fans, stuff like that. So we're sort of visualizing a program along the lines of like you know Cal Giant or something. Mm-hmm. Real development program, kind of like what GB and I started with TIA Craft, yeah. like to that level. Um, give guys some good support, and we've got a lot of young, promising riders on the team, so that's that's cool. So I'll be involved with that on some level for sure. Might be their performance director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see, but that's that's where things are at as far as the hour goes. So tonight for the athletes, I mean, I rode fifty uh, forty six point three, which yeah. honestly is. Slower than I thought I was gonna go. Yeah. Like, that is not what I would have called. I was like, I was thinking like, 49.0 would be the ride of my life. Yeah. I'm like, 40, anywhere in the 48s I'd be happy with. High 47s I'd be like slightly disappointed. So 46 is like, Ew, that kind of sucks. But I have to tell you, that was fucking hard. It's painful enough to not just think, oh, I'm gonna get right back at it, dude. Yeah. Like, I mean, I like your idea of every other week. Every, yeah, every I mean, week, every other week. I mean, every yeah, yeah. Monday like night. Form back, check. Yeah, yeah a little form a little check. Much, yeah. But every other well, week, you have some time to recover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what's yeah. fucked up about it. I did an hour at Boulder at BIC when it was open, 126 meter velodrome, yeah. and I rode. I think it was over 43k an hour, and that was just like me showing up with a jersey and a bottle. I mean, and a fucking iPod. I mean, so I'm like, how did I only go 3k faster in the springs? Jesus, I didn't. Like, I'll tell you, I've done some hard bike races. Like, I've done, I did Leadville, I did Bailey. The first year I did Bailey, man, the last hour of that race, you're just in pieces. Mm. I mean, you just, it's it's like you're in so much pain and your effort is so all-consuming. You can't, you can't even do that thing where you sort of put your effort on a certain level and then you're able to kind of think about other things. Your body is screaming so loudly, everything, your back and your legs sure. are so, you just, your t- attention is like constantly... It's like you're being drilled in the teeth. You just can't think of anything else. And all you can think is you want it to end and time stops. And that was the last hour of an eight hour mountain bike race. I was like that for the last 40 minutes of this tonight. I mean, after 20 minutes of riding. That's how yeah. relentless it was. And it was just like, I was shocked at how hard it was. How much harder it was than the aero bars. We can't shift. You can't, I mean, you can, but you're not supposed to get out of the saddle. You, you, you want to stay in the same hand position. But the aero bars, at least you don't have to support your upper body. Yes, the, yeah, I mean, the my trick. arms and my back were just, I didn't even realize how much my legs hurt until I got off and tried to walk, but my arms and back on the bike were just throttled. Yeah. I, I was shocked. I mean, I remember reading how Borman said, I never want to do that again yeah. afterwards. And I was like, wow. And now I get it. <laughs> it's weird it's about like, the, 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 the bike geek side of my brain is like, you yeah. say that and I'm already thinking like, how could you set up the bike so it would right. be comfortable? Right. Well, so you heard about O'Brien was going to go for it, and he had a position that was super right arm angled. He set the drops really high, so that his elbows were basically right angle, which is pretty much kind of like the Sphinx position. Yeah. But he was in the drops, and he was training like that on the road all the time. And then he got to Manchester and aborted because the thing is, when you go through the corners, the G's just put so much more weight on your upper body. He mm. said he couldn't handle it, and that's even in the springs, which has less cornering. 
I think that's what plays such a role in that, in that supporting of your torso weight. It's it's so so much g-force that you just you it's such a huge metabolic cost. I mean, even in the arrow record, I did. I, I can't believe how sore my neck was from supporting my weight of my head and my helmet. I was like, huh. thrashed. The last 10 laps, my neck was on fire. So it's like, there's a lot, that, that has a lot to do with it, is just negotiating the turns and the G-forces and the turns. Even the low Gs, like you get in the springs, let alone on a 250. Yeah. So there were worse in Manchester. So he went there and he couldn't do it at all. It's like, it's really interesting. The bike setup is hypercritical for that. I, I mean, I'm already thinking about it too. Like, was I too aggressive in my position? That could have been part of it for sure. Maybe I just need more time in it to adapt. I didn't really, because of the nature of the event, like again, my concept was to train at Boulder Valley all summer. I did not do that. I've yeah. run the track twice, three times in the last month Yeah, yeah. in the springs. I mean, so there's a lot, I don't know, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but it was still fun. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I established it. Hopefully it'll inspire some riders to go out and get their imaginations going, you know, maybe Maybe Haggard will show up next year and destroy it, or he'll you know, get off the couch when he's not watching TV or sending too many tweets. And he's pretty popular on his off season. I, that kid's amazing. I'm sure he could do it with one leg, you know. So yeah. No, I think it's great, man. I think it's great what you did. I think it's uh, it's ballsy to go out there and just. I mean, you're you're like you're measured, you know. Totally. Like it's an exact. It's, it's an exact measurement of how yeah. fast you went and. That's, I mean, honestly, tonight there was a period in the middle where I was like, oh, fuck. I, if nobody was watching, I would stop right now. <laughs> that's why I was like literally doing the Twitter call yeah. because I knew that if I had at least a dozen people there yelling at me, plus Mark came down, the yeah. guy built me the bike. Like, yeah. what am I going to do? Fucking quit after 20 minutes? I'd be like, this yeah. was hard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it was really fucking hard, but, <laughs> you know, that's, I got to respect that. Yeah. And my other sponsors that supported me. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. Well, good job in that. Man. Thanks, thanks. That was probably your longest podcast ever.